Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we're here to talk about Indiana Jones. Yes, in case you couldn't guess from the opening theme song. Oh my god, what could it be? Yes, perhaps one of the most famous movie themes of all time? Yes. So we've been promising for a couple of weeks now that we were going to do our big Indiana Jones retrospective podcast, which is one we've always wanted to do, because it's one of our favorite series. But there were certain delays based on family emergencies and stuff that just prevented us from sitting down and actually watching the movies, which we wanted to do before talking about them. Especially Temple of Doom, because you have to see that one every couple months to really remember just what it is. Yeah, all the strangeness and just what the hell that is, Temple Temple of Doom. I'm not even sure what the hell that is, Sean. I don't think anyone knows. No no one knows. Alright, so we are going to talk about Indiana Jones. If you don't know why we're doing this is, this was going to be more timely again at the time, but the big Blu-ray box set for Indiana Jones came out in early September. I think on September maybe 18th, so maybe not early, mid-September. And pretty cool set, five discs, you get all four movies and a fifth bonus disc, which has almost all the bonus features from the individual releases. So it's a really good set. You can replace all your old stuff. Sean and I have been watching through it. Are you pretty impressed with how damn good the movies look and sound and everything? Yep. They, yeah. They still look good. Yep. It's pretty great. Because, I mean, I've seen these movies probably more on 35mm than on DVD or VHS. Because I like to just go see them when they're playing in theaters. And, like, local theaters will play them for a night or something. That's always really fun. Um, so it's really neat to see them this way and just see how well they've captured the look of the films. Um, and really, you know, George Lucas obviously is the kind of guy who would probably want to make these look more digital, but Steven Spielberg really respects how his movies originally looked, and so they really do look like film. They're grainy. They look exactly how they're meant to look. So, pretty good. So, good set, recommended, but we're going to talk about the movies today, not so much the set, because... That's what that's what we really care about here. I'm sure if if you wanted the set, you have it. Yeah. It's Indiana Jones. So... And you can go read about that in all sorts of places, including, I'm sure, we got this covered. I think we did a Blu-ray review. I didn't cover that one. so, <clears throat> But someone did, because we got this covered. Yes, yes, yes we, we do. do. So, before we talk about Indiana Jones, Sean, do you have anything going on that you wanted to mention? Uh, not much. There's Of particular interest is there's, uh, if you're into video games, you should, even probably if you're not, you should be at least somewhat aware of the video game series Halo, and the newest one, Halo 4, is coming out on Election Day, November 6th. And to sort of promote it, they've been releasing, or they've been planning on releasing a live-action web series that's going to probably be about 90 minutes once all the parts are out. And the first part just came out, I believe, two days ago. It's called uh, Halo 4 Forward Unto Dawn. And Jonathan hasn't seen it yet, but I watched the first part. It's about 17 minutes long, and it's surprisingly really, really good. I'm really impressed by the quality of it. And it's totally for free. It's on YouTube, so... You can even watch it on your Xbox. You just, there's a, I think there's a link right there on the homepage, and you just click yeah. it. So. so, yes, and we will talk about the whole thing when it's done. Yeah. There's probably going to be four or five parts, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when, when they're all out, we'll talk about it probably on one of our Halo casts coming out later this year uh, as Halo 4 approaches. I did not remember, Sean, that Halo 4 was literally coming out on Election Day. Yes, yeah, Election Day. Okay, that's, I'm so, glad I got a mail-in ballot. Yeah, no, me too, because that's not... That was not going to happen. No. <laughs> Priorities. I vote Master Chief every time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about experience? He saved the fucking universe from Covenant and Flood. Yep. Any other candidate say that? No. 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 If he were in the debates, he wouldn't even talk. He's he just would, have he to look. to. Yep. Yeah. Or Cortana would make the points for him. Yeah. In any case, excited for Halo. 
Um, let's see, so what's going on with me? I got this week, as long as we're talking about Blu-ray sets, uh, it's my birthday this week, so I got for my birthday the massive Bond 50 Blu-ray set that came out, and it's called Bond 50 because this is indeed the 50th anniversary. It's got all 22 films and an open slot for Skyfall, the 23rd film that's coming out later this year. It's a really cool set. I highly recommend it. It's got really neat packaging. I'm showing this to Sean here. It's made with two sort of hardcover books, and you open them up. It says Bond 50, and it's got pictures and the dates of the films and all the discs in just sort of this book packaging. It's actually very similar to the Indiana Jones packaging. Yeah, only much, much bigger. Much bigger, because there's 22 discs, not five. Yeah. 23 discs is the bonus. So it's really neat. I, it's a great set. All the movies, I mean, I haven't watched all the movies, but I've, looked, I've sampled quite a few. They look beautiful. I mean, a lot of these are, are, you know, 60s Technicolor movies, and for some reason, those look gorgeous on Blu-ray. Technicolor just really, really transfers to high definition fantastically well. So that's pretty nice. It's a good set. Watched Dr. No last night. Great movie. Sean Connery's awesome. And we will talk much more about him later on this podcast. Yes, yes, we will. Because Sean Connery's awesomeness... It, it protrudes into many film series. Yes. So, not just James Bond. So, that's pretty cool. But, in, in honor of, of Bond 50 and sort of the, all the stuff people have been talking about James Bond lately, because the Skyfall theme came out recorded by Adele, which is fucking awesome, by the way. Great song. Really good James Bond theme. I wanted to sh- uh, put on the podcast here a little clip I found in the trailer to Dr. No!, which is the first James Bond film. And I was watching this trailer on the Blu-ray, and then I found it also online here, and it's got a really, really funny quote about James Bond. So let's, let's take a minute here. I want to play it, and then I want to hear your reaction, Sean, to how they describe James Bond's license to kill. Okay. James Bond, 007. License to kill whom he pleases, where he pleases, when he pleases. Okay, so that's it. <laughs> Do you like that description? Yeah, license to kill whom he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases. I think they misunderstand the point of the license to kill. Yeah, it's not that he can just go kill any motherfucker on the street. It's that he can he, he has the authorization to kill people when it's necessary to accomplish his mission. <laughs> not with, like, if someone, I don't know, like... Someone gives him a shitty hot dog on the street, and he, boom, paid for it, and he has to kill him? Like, no, no. I love it because it's like, that opens up a whole different Bond series where he's a serial killer licensed by the government. Yeah, well, I, I don't... Thomas and I, my, my brother and I, we saw that, and we were just laughing our asses off at it, imagining, like, he just goes out in public, and someone, like, trips over him, starts shooting people in the yeah. street, and then a cop comes over and is like, what on earth are you doing? And he pulls out his license. What's all this thing? Yeah, he pulls out his license, and he's like, oh, you're licensed! Of course, and then he kills the cop for yeah. questioning him. So that is a pretty great movie trailer moment. Yeah, that's they <laughs> definitely were got a little bit too excited about James Bond and went a little over the over the top with that. And I love how politely they say it: "Whom he pleases, when he pleases, and where he pleases, <laughs> however he pleases." <laughs> Get pretty dark. So anyway, that's our little anecdote, and uh, let's talk about Indiana Jones. Let's. All right. Overall thoughts on the series? I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty weird. When we were yeah, it's a weird series. It's like when you look at it as a whole, yes. it's a little strange. And I mean, this is sort of funny because when's the last time you actually sat down and watched them in close proximity? Do you think the first time I watched them? Okay, so that would have been like when I was twelve, maybe. Right. Probably the same thing with me, or maybe when the DVD set came out, something yeah. like that. It's been a while, um, but it is. It's, it was really fun to watch them in close proximity. I think. 
because you kind of get this weird whiplash with them where Raiders is a really great movie and it kind of exists in an island unto itself. Yeah. And then you watch Temple of Doom and it's like something out of an alternate universe. Yeah, it's a completely different kind of movie. Yeah, it's completely different, makes no sense. You're done with it and you feel like you were sleeping, you dreamt the movie, like it couldn't have actually happened. The only way you know it existed is you're holding the case and you're like, it's tangible. And then you watch Last Crusade and they're basically scrambling to make another Raiders. Yeah, they go immediately back to the Raiders style things. Yeah, with a little more humor thrown in. And... Just so you know, we're not we're going to mention Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at the end, but we're really focusing on the trilogy here. Yeah. Because I think, for one, everyone's got their made, minds made up on Crystal Skull. I don't think there's much more we can say about it, especially because, to me, and Sean, I think your opinion pretty much matches mine, I don't have much to say about it. It exists. Yeah. It's fine. I don't think it's that good. I don't think it's bad. Yeah, Whatever. I definitely don't have the sort of reaction that most people have, or most Indiana Jones fans have, that it's like a wildly different movie. It's just terrible... It just betrayed the entire series or anything like that. I think it's just... I think it's a pretty lackluster Yeah, I think it's all. just the most boring movie out of the four. So. Oh, yeah. it's It's got nothing... And we're going to talk about that later, is that with Indiana Jones, kind of what we like about it is how interesting and out there the movies can be. Yeah. And Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, that's where it fails for me, is that there's really nothing... It doesn't really offer anything interesting or new or revelatory, which... Temple of Doom, man. You, you want a new experience? Watch Temple of Doom. Yeah. It's like nothing you've ever seen. Even if you've seen it before. So watch it again. Yeah. Because yeah. So, you will have forgotten like half the stuff in that movie. I don't know why. The Temple of Doom just has that effect on you. Where it's, you, you watch it and you're like, what the fuck did I just watch? And then when you, like the next few days later, you think back on it. It's like, the movie wasn't like that. That couldn't have been. Yeah. It, yeah, it's like repression. You're just you're slowly putting it back down until you experience it again. Yeah. But I think that's probably the movie we'll spend the most time on because it's fun. Yeah, probably. So, but first, let's start with Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this was sort of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's attempt to make a throwback to sort of the serials of the 1930s and 40s mm-hmm. adventure movie. Just as Star Wars was a throwback to you know sci-fi serials, this was the other idea George Lucas had had. But definitely made with Steven Spielberg's hand. Yeah. And what can you say about it? It's one of the greatest adventure movies ever made. And it's a spectacular introduction to the character. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, what do you have to say about Raiders? What you just said. Okay. Yeah, Raiders, it's it's an awesome movie. I think, I mean, I'm just going to mention this now because I feel like, because we just discovered we have a rift in this. My favorite one of the series is Last Crusade and yours is Raiders. Yes. Yes. I mean, Raiders, we did our big, like, top ten favorite movies of all time yeah. for the pilot episode of this podcast, and it's number, I think, eight on my list overall, right below Blade Runner. It's just, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's just got that effect where I kind of love every single second of it. Um, you all know the story. Indiana Jones goes searching for the, the Lost Ark of the Covenant, and the Nazis are on his trail and the trail of the Ark, but he manages to overcome them sort of again and again until he doesn't overcome them, and then spirits save the day. Yeah, melts melts some faces. Melts some faces, and then he and Marion go off to lead their probably horribly dysfunctional love affair. Well, maybe because <laughs> you don't see her again until fucking like a few years ago. Well, so. he, we know he knocks her up and then leaves her with a kid. And yeah, poor Marion. All weird, weird stuff with Marion. Weird stuff all, with Indiana Jones and love interests. Well, all the love interests in Indiana Jones are pretty much just victims of him. Like, yeah. I mean, we may not like Willie Scott all that much. But she doesn't deserve what she gets. No, nobody <laughs> deserves that. Yeah. All right. So let's 
I think this is where we want to take the discussion with Raiders, is I think people forget, because Raiders is such a good and universally beloved movie, it's got a lot of wacky, wacky stuff in it, too. Yeah. And I think where we need to start this discussion, because this is the first Indiana Jones movie, where we meet the character, is, Sean, in your understanding of archaeology, do you think Dr. Indiana Jones is a good archaeologist? He's the fucking worst (laughs) archaeologist ever. I mean, he's not an archaeologist. That's just, no. He's so far away from archaeology, it's um, it's incredible. (laughs) Explain. Well, okay, well, I mean... Archaeology I agree, is, I'm just, yes, you know. archaeology, that's, it's a painstaking process. You, you go on expeditions, and you catalog everything you find. You do one dirt layer at a time. You carbon date everything. It is extremely deliberate and an extremely time-consuming process because you don't want to contaminate anything, you don't want to destroy anything, and you don't want to accidentally not record something so you have a missing piece of data. That's what archaeology is. What Indiana Jones does is he goes in and pilfers artifacts from ancient tombs and tends to destroy everything in his path. <laughs> I mean, I, every single movie he ends up destroying a priceless artifact. Yes, or, or many priceless artifacts. Yes. Uh, uh, culminating in Last Crusade where he destroys the ancient city. Yeah, the one of the ancient wonders of the world, the ancient city of Petra, just yeah. gets sunk into a sinkhole in the ground. So, I mean, there is sort of this funny alt-narrative of Indiana Jones where you can kind of view it as he's like this bumbling grave robber. Man, that is basically what he is. And it's very fun to watch it that way. I mean, uh, one of the best scenes in Raiders, or in the whole trilogy, I think, is the opening scene where you first meet Indy and he's got that great adventure in the... He's going to find the Golden Idol. And we have some logical issues to talk about here. Oh, there's so many logical issues. But we should also talk about just his approach to archaeology here is just kind of to barge his way in, let people die, kind of like set off some traps, get in, put a, you know, just steal the idol out of this religious tomb and then run out and destroy everything. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love how presumably most people don't know that that tomb even exists, right? I think it's safe to assume that or else someone would have taken the idol by now. Yes. And so, first of all, you should, the whole tomb is an archaeological artifact. The whole tomb should be treated as, okay, we have a whole team of people, not just one asshole and, all, and Alfred Molina and, like, a couple of other native people he's strung along that get killed. It's like you have a whole team of trained professionals, and you treat the entire thing as an archaeological site. You don't go barging in looking for one single artifact when the entire thing is full of artifacts. The, the architecture itself is an artifact that needs to be preserved and recorded. So Agreed. Yes, that's the first... Significant error error in his ability to be an archaeologist. The most tragic thing to me is that not only is he an archaeologist, but he also, you see, he teaches archaeology. He's a professor at a university. We'll get into the professor scene in a bit, because it's a fun scene to talk about. But first, I do want to mention the, uh, all the traps that are there. You have an issue with, sort of, how did these ancient people, yes. I mean, yeah, the first, I love the first trap you come across is what, it's like, you have to, you if you break a beam of light, it's like all these spikes come out of the walls. Like, what? How did they have some sort of photoreceptive material that detects when light is hitting it or not? It's this ancient South American civilization, and they can detect when a beam of light has been broken, and then also have the mechanical know-how to create the spikes. I mean, the spikes is the least troublesome part of that, but that's completely fucking ridiculous. There's no... <laughs> No possible way. And then also, I love when he gets to the golden idol. 
I'm still trying to figure out how this is supposed to work, where he's, the idol is on the pedestal thing, and he takes it off and he puts the bag of sand on there that's supposed to approximately weigh what the idol weighs, and then the thing goes up. It's like, that doesn't really make any sense, but anyways, he takes the idol, and then everyone remembers the, it's the really famous moment where the boulder... Fall like rolls down, but what you may not remember is the boulder doesn't fall down immediately. I yeah, think that's, that's how yeah. you always remember. Yeah, it. you remember he takes the idol and then the boulder starts chasing. Him. Whenever you see like a parody of it, that's how that scene happens. But a ton of stuff happens. In yeah, the no, the, he takes the idol, then he runs. Like Alfred Molina gets the idol because he has to chuck it to him. Then Alfred Molina gets killed by the spike trap, and then the boulder starts coming after him, and he's moved probably like twenty meters away from where the actual idol sat. So, some, some Mayan or Aztec, whatever the civilization is, some dude had to have come up with one with a way to have a giant boulder get released as soon as the idol gets taken. But not as soon as the idol gets taken. He had to put in a time delay for precisely whatever, like, whatever he thought, like, 30 seconds it would have taken for a person to get to that point. And he had to have somehow come up with some way to do that so that the boulder would start chasing after them. Yes. We don't know how it works, but I mean, that's the thing about Indiana Jones. We're going to point out a lot of stuff like this. So, that never diminishes the fun. That's part of the fun, is saying, how the fuck does this stuff work? And I think it's part of why, when we're, we're going to get to this point later when we talk about Crystal Skull, is yeah. we don't have any issues with the aliens. Oh, yeah, or, no, that's... People who think that's gone over the top are not watching these fucking movies. Yeah, every moment of Indiana Jones is over the top. And, and ridiculous. In, in, intentionally so, yeah. right? I mean, I think some of the things Steven Spielberg probably didn't think about the weird boulder thing when he made it. Yeah, no, probably not. But. but it's not a detraction to the movie. It's part of the fun, I think. Yeah. So, anyway, so that's, that opening scene is great. You just get a, such a great sense of who Indiana Jones is and what a bad archaeologist he probably is overall. Yeah. Then he goes back and starts teaching, and we learn that all his students are in love with him. Yeah. Even apparently the male students, because you've got like the one guy who's sort of like, he's got his hand, or his head in his arm, and he's sort of like sighing, looking at Dr. Jones. Yeah. And then you've got the woman who has love you written on her eyelashes. Fucking creepy. <laughs> I think she's a stalker. Yeah. She's really out of place in 1938. Like, you just don't, when I think about 1938, I don't think about some girl having a hoss for their teacher and then writing I love you on their eyelids so you can <laughs> see it whenever you blink. Yes. Um, I will say, one of the few things I do like about, or well, not one of the few things, one of the things that surprisingly is actually pretty accurate in the professor scene is most scenes when you see people teaching in movies, it seems like, so you come into the scene and it's like they're starting a lecture, but then the bell goes off. Yeah. When they do this scene in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's giving his lecture, he is actually in the middle of a lecture. I yeah. like that. Like, he seems like he's near the end of it and he gets cut off instead of being like, Archaeology is, and then he gets cut off. Yeah. Like, what was he doing for the first hour and a half of that? Regaling with them with tales of how many people he's killed. I mean, that's what we got to talk about, yeah. right? Is Does he tell his students, like, man, this weekend I killed so many Nazis? It's you, unbelievable. There's this one time I, I was in India, I, I ran into this blood sacrifice, Kali, all this stuff. It was fucking crazy. And then the, the guards came, and we wiped out pretty much a whole religion. It was, yeah. I mean, we killed... We slaughtered just dozens and dozens of just native people in India. It's I, fantastic. I, I kidnapped this white chick, banged her a couple times, left her in an Indian village. Yeah, I, had, I just dragged this Chinese orphan around with me all the time. Nice kid. Yeah. Wish I had him here. He could grade my papers. Yeah, that's just... I just don't like the idea of Indiana Jones <laughs> teaching impressionable 
teenagers. That's just... It's not okay. It's not okay. Like, if you were to make an Indiana Jones film in 2000, like, set in 2010, would all those kids have grown up to be him? Like, they'd taken their lessons from him, and now they're running they'd all They'd all be dead. Like, if they were trying to be like Indiana Jones, they'd all be dead. I mean, they'd all... They would all fail whatever sort of, like, standardized exam they would have to do to, be, like, become an archaeologist, or, like, whatever paper they have to write. No, they couldn't... I mean, they may pass Indiana Jones as a class, but that doesn't mean they're archaeologists. Yeah. Or they know anything about archaeology. Uh, so let's let's keep going with the story. We, we then have the scene where, you know, they just explain what the Lost Ark is, and he sets out to find it. And one thing I should note about this whole section of the movie, and the whole movie overall, why I like Raiders, is it feels like tonally it's very, very tight to me, mm-hmm. and they build this really nice atmosphere around uh, the Lost Ark. And, and sort of this fearful atmosphere, and John Williams and his awesome musical score is part of that, obviously. But then, you know, it means that there's just a really good, palpable sense of sort of fear around it, which means the payoff to it really hits. Because mm-hmm. it's actually, they do, not only do they build up to that moment, they actually pay off on it. They don't just, it's not sort of a letdown with some of the stuff that, to me, kind of happens with the Grail at the end of Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, but it works really well. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that, because that's kind of what I think about when you start putting in the exposition, is the exposition in Raiders is actually pretty interesting. Yeah. It is in most of the movies, actually, I think. Uh, In Last Crusade, there's a lot of good stuff with the Grail and the exposition there. Temple of Doom, fascinating. (laughs) For maybe the wrong reasons, but... Yeah. I I, I wish I knew more about, like, the actual Hindu religion, so I could (laughs) know all the stuff they get completely inaccurate. It's racist. We can just leave it at that. Oh, yeah, it's completely racist. I just want to know the specifics of where they go wrong. Right, but let's keep it on Raiders for now. So uh, he goes and meets Marion in the bar, and let's talk about Marion for a second. Marion's a good character, right? Yeah. I really like like Marion. I like Marion. Yep, it's sort of funny because we'll talk about this later in the other movies. Indiana Jones and romance never really goes that well together. Uh, Certainly not in two or three. No. Uh, and, No. And in four, it's kind of not even an issue. But in one, it's sort of funny, because I think there is a really good romance at the heart of it, but it's got some undertones it's to it. It's got some really creepy undertones. So, go into it, Sean. Well, I mean, it's really hard to go into, because it's really vague, but they talk about how Indiana studied under, what was his name, like, Abner Ravencroft? Abner Ab- Ab- Ravenwood. Abner Ab- Ab- Ravenwood. Sorry, that was so far off from his crazy warlock name. Yeah. I love that, Abner Ravenwood. But yeah, he was a student of Abner Ravenwood, and Marion was his daughter. And so, and there's this really creepy little sense that they're talking about how Indiana had a relationship with Marion, but when she was underage, is what it sounded like they were talking about, when she was, like, way too young to be having a relationship with Indiana. And then he left... And that's why Marion's so pissed off at Indy, because he was sort of her first love when he was way too old to be her first love, and then he left. Totally creepy undertone. So that's really creepy. Let's which makes some... it even more creepy when all of his students are totally in love with him, because you know he has no qualms about that kind of stuff. Do you want to do some math here and see if the ages work out? Sure. Okay, so uh, let's assume that... Uh, so do they say in the movie, Marion says it was like a decade ago, ten years, something like that? Sure. When it happened? Okay. So we'll just use the ages of the actors as the ages of the characters. Close okay. enough. So, Karen Allen was born, who she plays Marion, in 1951. Raiders was conveniently made in 1981. So she would be 30 at the time of Raiders, mm-hmm. which means she would have been 20 at the time of this. So that's close to underage. You can still kind of get the undertones yeah. there, right? And then Harrison Ford would have been born in 1942, again, pretty convenient for math, so he would be about 40 at the time of Raiders, which means he would have been 30 when he was macking on this 20-year-old girl. Yeah. So the math kind of works out with your theory there, Sean. Yeah. 
And, and that's the, is the thing. Harrison Ford does not look old by any means in Raiders. Compared to Karen Allen, who looks pretty young in Raiders, there is an age gap there. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> definitely an age gap. And that age gap is written into the script. Like, it's there's definitely... Yes. There's a hint at the, that there being some sort of creepy, underage thing going on there. And we do kind of see throughout the series that Indy and sex just don't really go well together. He has yes, kind of a sadistic... He's really creepy yeah. in, in, like, that section of his life. It's... It's really disturbing. I mean, we have sort of the the classic iconic romance scene in Raiders is the, you know, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage scene. Yeah. But even then, it's kind of, and that one's sort of the only tender scene in Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of others that have sort of a physical, like, aspect to it, or a sort of abusive physical aspect, yeah. that are a little creepier. Again, when we get to Willie Scott, lots to talk about there. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the scenes with Elsa in Last Crusade, which, my fucking God, are they awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Little, little awkward. Yes, it's pretty awkward. But we like Indy and Marion together. They make a really good team. I think, really, she's the only one who has great chemistry with Harrison Ford in the series in terms of male female. Yeah, I agree. And they have some really good scenes together. Uh, but anyway, they go to Cairo together, and there's the great street chase. And here's another issue I want to talk about: is that he assumes. So there's the whole scene where Marion we think she's dead. There's a lot of jokes we can make from this. Yeah. First of all, why does he just assume it? Like, he doesn't see a body, he doesn't. He just starts going and drinking with the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, like, that whole, this whole sequence is so weird because I did not remember that he thought Marion was dead for, like, half of the movie. And there's no particular reason to think that she was dead for half of the movie. They really just didn't have anything for Karen Allen to do, so write her out for half an hour. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of move along with the plot. Yeah. And bring her back in. But there's the great moment where we have Sala, John Reese davies who we'll talk about more in a second, because he's awesome, mm-hmm. in this movie at least. <laughs> well, he is in movie three, too. John Reese davies is always awesome. Yes. So, Sala has the best reaction to death ever in any movie. It's perfect. He comes up, and, 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 and Indy's just had this really intense confrontation with Belloc, where he was kind of suicidal because of what happened to Marion. It's actually a really good dramatic scene. Yeah. Well played by Harrison Ford. And as he's loading all the kids into the car, he says to Sala, Marion's dead. He says, I know Indy. Life goes on! <laughs> Life goes on, Indy! <laughs> and then he starts singing, I think. Yeah, he does. Some sort of, it sounds like an English-like folk song, even <laughs> though he's supposed to be Egyptian. He's the Egyptian with the really thick northern British accent. Yeah. So, that's great. Just that a whole thing of, life goes on! And then yeah, he... Sala just, he's like, Sala doesn't give a fuck. He's like, yeah, it's okay! Life goes on! And you can apply that to, like, so many moments in Indiana Jones, just make that joke. Yeah. Like, when he sees Indian Marion lowered into the Temple of Souls, he'd probably be like, Life goes on! Uh, Life wants, goes on! Whatever! Who wants lunch? I'm cooking! <laughs> Bring the monkey! Yep. Or, or the best moment, in Last Crusade, would, would you, do you think he would say something like when, when Sean Connery gets shot, Henry Jones <laughs> Sr.? He would, like, see him get shot, and Indy would be really disturbed by it. And like, oh, don't worry, Indy, life goes on. Life goes on. Let's leave the temple. It's okay. <laughs> we love Sala. Let's talk a little more about Sala. He's such an interesting character. Yeah, he's, like, I, I'm kind of confused about why Sala. Like, why Sala is Sala. He's, <laughs> it's a weird sort of side character to have in these movies, especially to bring him back in the third one where he's not that important. Yeah, but he's just... He's sort of this awesome Egyptian dude who doesn't really resemble Egyptian people or talk like At Egyptian all. people. Yeah. I mean, John Rhys-Davies is very, very British. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely not Egyptian. No. I think we can easily come to that conclusion. But he's supposed to be Egyptian. <laughs> it would have made Lord of the Rings a really interesting movie if, if John Rhys-Davies had been Egyptian. 
Yeah. Like an Egyptian Gimli running around? <laughs> but anyway, so he's sort of, you know, he's this northern African person who's really northern British, and he's got apparently a really successful digging company in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Who was, he's been contracted by the Nazis, but he's very, very good at evading them. I mean, he's a useful character to India. Yeah. He really is kind of the hero of that second. I mean, he doesn't go on the truck chase or go into the Well of Souls and all that, but infrastructure-wise, Sala's got it covered. Yeah, if Sala wasn't there, he would have been screwed. Totally. I mean, that's sort of the thing about Indiana Jones. He's made. He's got friends in high places all over the world, except in the places where he doesn't, like yeah, India. He doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have friends in most places, actually. It's basically just Sala. Just Sala. And Marcus Brody. Those are the two friends that Indiana has. Well, I think that's kind of funny, because I, I get the sense in Raiders that he has friends in other places, because if you, he can just go to Egypt and he has Sala there. I'd assume he could go to other places and have people there, like in... He's got his pilot down in where he's getting the Golden Idol and all that. He brings people along. Again. Right. But it's kind of funny, we come back to Last Crusade and he has to just yeah, call Sala and, and Brody again. But he's just lucky that the only friend he has lives in Egypt and he keeps on having to go back to Egypt. Yes. Not just Egypt, and specifically Cairo. Yep. So do we want to speculate as to what was the origin of India and Sala's relationship? That's something I've always been kind of curious about, how, how exactly they just met. I assume Sala was part of an architectural excavation for some sort of ancient Egyptian artifact, and then he just destroyed it. And that's how they first met. Yes. I mean, that has to be what it was. And Salah, you know, he probably lost a bunch of men in the operation. Yeah. Lost a lot of money, but then he just said, life goes on. Life goes on. And he's like, do you want to be friends? And then he's like, sure. Yeah. Fuck it. Life goes on. So Salah's pretty cool. So we can kind of conflate the entire middle section of Raiders which is a really good part of the movie, but it kind of, it all just leads into each other, and the pacing here is so fucking flawless. I mean, Steven Spielberg, just as a director, this to me is like the height of his craft. Is this, is the, all of Raiders, but this section in Egypt is really tight, where you go from the street chase to them figuring out, you know, the staff of Ra, and you have that yeah. great scene in the, in the Lost City where he finds the location, where somehow laser beams. <laughs> yeah, I love... I love how it's not just like it's a focused beam of light from the crystal. It's a fucking laser. It looks like it's going to light the place on fire. Yeah, it really does. So you got the laser beam. He finds the, the Well of Souls. We go into the Well of Souls. He lights a bunch of snakes on fire because he's a maniac. Yeah. And... Jesus. <laughs> I, I don't... We, let's just talk about this right now. What the fuck is it with these movies and these massive piles of animals? They're in every single one. And the first one, there's the massive pile of snakes. And there's just snakes everywhere. They're all different types of snakes. Yeah, and they're just... I mean, they're just living on top of each other. It's insane. It's, there's no possible way that could happen in real life. And like, we know that because in real life when they did that, half the snakes died. Yeah, because you're not supposed to just throw mountains of snakes out of the bottom of a fucking soundstage and expect them to just live. They need food and water, those sorts of things. Yeah, and space! Like, you have to have a certain amount of space if you're that close up. It's like, you're gonna get diseases. It's like, you don't have enough room to move. Like, the snakes are gonna start fighting each other. Those snakes would all be fucking dead. There's no way those snakes would have been alive, especially at the bottom in the movie, at the bottom of this ancient tomb that they've now excavated for the first time in, like, 3,000 years. I mean, assuming that, you know, well, we don't assume. We know snakes are cold-blooded, but assuming that place gets cold in the winter... Yeah, just all those snakes would be... There would not be any snakes there. Yes. For, for Indy to just sadistically light on fire and then just completely, like, sort of just pass by the fact that he just did that. Yes. Just, and also the fact that the snakes would not have done anything to the people down there, but whatever. Okay. 
So, second movie we have... The massive piles of insects that are just... They go into the cavern, at the side of the palace, and there's just, like, a thousand different species of insects, and there's just millions and millions of them just piled on top of each other. Again, but there's a reason why you don't just go walking down the street and there's just mountains of, like, caterpillars just, like, on the sidewalk. Because animals don't live like that. You need to have space, you need to be able to get food and water. Ecosystems do not develop in such a way that you just have thousands of animals in a cramped, tight space living just, like, off on their own for God knows how long for them to be uncovered in architectural excavation. And it's, they also sort of weirdly bypass the fact that if the floor is made of insects, their feet would be pretty fucked up when they're walking over them and just yeah. smashing thousands of insects. All right, so third movie, we have rats. Yes, in the sewers, you have, again, massive, massive piles of rats. It's so ludicrously exaggerated from what it could would actually be in real life. Like, sure, there'd be rats down there, fine, but there would be a million rats in one little corridor. Yes. Is there anything like that in the fourth movie? I don't remember that. I think The only thing I remember is there being a bunch of fire ants, but that's actually... Accurate. Yeah, because they're fire ants. It's not like they're the bunch of like sin, giant centipedes like they were right. in Civil Doom. There's going to be a lot of ants. Yeah. Ants are tiny. Yes. There are all those monkeys swinging in the trees. It seemed like <laughs> a lot of monkeys from what I remember that scene. Probably wouldn't be that many monkeys in real life. Yeah. Sheila Booth counts as a monkey, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. Primate. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, weird ecosystem logic in Indiana Jones. Yes, making its debut in the first movie. Yes, but there's a lot of good uh, stuff in The Well of Souls. Not only do you have sort of the, the cool, just sort of the slow tension atmospheric scene when he first goes down there and they uncover the Ark. And oh, they have another great archaeological moment down there where he goes, he and Sala go to get the Ark. And they find there's, it's, the Ark itself is inside a bigger sort of chest. Yeah. And this chest has to be thousands of years old. It was made by the people who put the Ark there. It's an archaeological find unto itself, right? Yeah. yeah. And he and Sala lift up the lid and smash it over the side. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it breaks too, right? It does, we see it yeah. break. So. Destroy an archaeological artifact? Yep, fucking fantastic. Just destroy every scientific piece of evidence and whatever you want. Just destroy all of it. And there's more of that too, because later, so he gets the Ark out, and then he and Marion are, are thrown down there and they're trapped. They break, they, they break the tomb. So how he decides to get out is... Fuck it, there's these giant statues. These like, there's like a statue of Anubis that's fucking huge. It's a work of art. It's like that thing. Yeah, that, no, it's that, amazing. Indy likes to say, this belongs in a museum, that belongs in a fucking museum. It's amazing. Yeah. And he smashes it and breaks the wall, and, and then they break all these skeletons and things. Yep. And yep. just break their way out, <laughs> leaving a pile of destruction in their wake. Of course, we should mention that Belloc, as an archaeologist, archaeologist too, is doing a horrible job excavating this like lost city. Yeah, no, they just... That should, that should be like a 20-year archaeological dig. But at least Belloc is the villain, and he's <laughs> just trying to look for the Ark of the Covenant. Right. Indiana Jones is an archaeologist. He, you're supposed to like be rooting for him. He says several times it's like, it's like stuff to the effect of this belongs in a museum. He's trying to preserve artifacts. He's not doing it for his own glory, even though he kind of says that a few times. He's trying to uncover artifacts and give it to a museum. Just... But he destroys everything he finds and touches and all crumbles to dust. <laughs> Pretty much. So he gets out, and then we have probably my favorite section of Indiana Jones 
which is where once they get out of the Well of Souls, we have that great fight where he fights just the big, massive guy who's waiting there to fight. Uh, and, and we'll go back to that because I want to talk about it in more depth, but just explaining the scene. He winds up, you know, throwing him into the propeller, and then a bunch yeah. of shit blows up, and then they have the truck chase. And the truck chase is fucking incredible, but let's break this down piece by piece. Indiana and Marion run out and they go to the plane. Now, I don't know why they go to the plane, because they don't really do anything with the plane. Yeah. Intentionally. Marion gets stuck because she's an idiot for those five seconds. She just loses her mind. Yeah. And gets stuck in the airplane. And then you have this great shot where this big, hulky guy, he looks like Bane from The Dark yeah, Knight Rises. Yeah, he is huge. He's a huge guy. I don't know where they found him. That guy deserves to have a career doing something that, that you know you need that kind of body for. Yeah, he looked like a professional wrestler. It, yeah. was, it was like The Rock. Yeah. He comes out, he sees Indy and Marion, and he just goes, yeah! He's really yeah. happy. He's like, yeah! Yeah! He's like, he was waiting for a fight. He runs out there. He's in the desert in the blistering sun. He probably has skin cancer from being half naked. Yeah, he's half naked constantly. And he just runs out and gets in a big fist fight with Indy. Yeah. <laughs> Note that they are... That Indy and Marion are the escaped captives. <laughs> that him f- seeing them should be his first reaction. He's a giant weightlifting Nazi. Should be, oh, there's a kid. Like, our Nazi camp is right down over there. Maybe I should go alert our massive camp of Nazis that those two fuckers escaped from the tomb. T does not do that in any way. Instead, he's like, oh, those guys escaped. I'm going to beat the shit out of them. <laughs> And so he runs over and proceeds to beat the shit out of them. It's a great fight scene. Yeah, it really is. It's so well choreographed and edited. I mean, my God, I can't imagine how hard it would be to edit all that in time because there's so many moving components. Where you have the fist fight, which isn't much of a fight because it's really just Indy getting pounded. I mean, Harrison Ford... I mean, I would assume he didn't actually get hit, but yeah. Indiana Jones takes a fucking beating here. Yeah. And it beats the shit out of him. Yes. <laughs> and so, meanwhile, Marion does some weird shit, and a gas thing starts leaking like she fires yeah, a little bit. the plane starts spinning around. So, ga- so the plane's spinning, gas is going everywhere, uh, there's sort of fire starting to spread, and so eventually... They concoct a scenario where, you know, Indy sort of pushes... He doesn't push the guy. The guy's just standing there ready to fight. The propeller gets him. And if they had actually shown that, that would be like the glorious moment. Yeah. (laughs) He just gets caught in the propeller. I mean, that would have given Indiana Jones an R rating right away. (laughs) Yeah. They'd shown that. (laughs) Just, Just blood everywhere. And so that happens. And then you get into the greatest explosion sequence in the whole trilogy. And there are a lot of good explosions. Yeah. In fact, do we want to address this really quick, that in Indiana Jones, basically... Okay, Sean, you're playing with a pencil here. Yes. I'm going to drop the pencil onto the table. If this were Indiana Jones, what would happen when I do this? Kaboom! <laughs> yeah, no. It, when two objects collide, even if they have no reason to explode, shit goes boom. Yeah, and then also, Indiana Jones has classic action movie syndrome. Something that I really dislike is that gasoline is somehow the most destructive <laughs> substance known to man... That introduced to any amount of heat whatsoever, it will destroy the fucking world in a massive explosion. That's how it works here, because that's how the plane blows up, because the gasoline goes out. As soon as gasoline touches the ground, you know, shit's just over. It's over. You just run for the fucking hills, and that's because gasoline has been exposed outside of a tank. And that's what Indian and Marion do. They're running, the plane explodes, then a whole weapons cache explodes, and then the communications tower explodes. For no fucking reason! <laughs> like, okay, whatever, gasoline, 
at least it's flammable. So, whatever, it explodes. Nothing have happened in real life, but okay. Weapons cache, it has grenades and stuff. I can buy that explodes. The communications tower, there is nothing there. I mean, everything else explodes. Then you have the shot of the main Nazi dude walking into frame, and then behind him, the communica- is the communication tower, and it just fucking blows up. Then nothing happened to it. It just blew up because an explosion happened in the same country, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, I think, I always just like to think that they rigged, you know, these big explosions on set. I mean, the explosions in these movies look great because they're all practical effects. Yeah. They actually... They're actually explosions. Yeah, they blew stuff up. So I imagine Steven Spielberg said, man, we overestimated how much TNT we need. We've got, like, how many boxes? Fuck, what's big enough to blow up with all that? Tower! <laughs> yeah, Do it! That tower we made? Uh, but, sir, why would it blow up? That <laughs> movie... Yeah. Okay, we don't have to think about it. So everything explodes, and Indian Marion get away, and it's time for the, the truck chase. And I fucking love the truck chase. It's my single favorite action sequence in Indiana Jones. It's just so well done with Indy. Basically, just him and one... He starts just on a horse, and it's just him and a horse, and he has the audacity to think he can just attack a whole brigade of trucks and defeat them all. And he does. He jumps onto the truck, he fights off each person who comes up one by one... Eventually he gets shot, and then he's thrown out of the truck, but it doesn't matter. He just falls behind it, probably scrapes the shit out of his back, yeah. gets back on the truck, gets back in it, and then he you know, kills the guy in there, runs it off the road. Untold numbers of people are dead at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's got the arc, and it is just such a satisfying sequence because, really, you can say the truck chases its own set piece, but to me, that entire middle section in Egypt feels like one prolonged set piece. And it works yeah. really well. And then it's really satisfying when he gets it, which makes the stuff on the ship after that a little unsatisfying that the submarine just comes and steals everything. Yeah, but I do have to say my favorite part about the truck chase is that really awkward moment of time after he hijacks the truck for the first time, but there's still all the troops in the back, and they're just kind of sitting there for like five minutes, and then they decide to get out and try to go get him. But there's one dude who stays back there, so that once he kills all the other people who come to get him, that guy can then come out. <laughs> it's like, I just want to see their little huddle of just like, Oh, that fucking asshole, he's driving the truck now. Oh, shit. What? I mean, okay, we got to get out and climb around it. Uh, do you just... Okay, we're, we know we're all going to die just because he's the hero. You, you just stay behind. You can give it another shot after we're all killed. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So after that, again, we have the stuff on the ship. Our stuff on the ship. And you have Captain Katanga, who... It's kind of funny. They try to make him into sort of a vivid character... But they really don't. Yeah, he's there for like five minutes. Marion has that great line where she comes in with the dress, and Indy says, who gave you that? And she says, him. And we're just supposed to kind of know who it is, and I don't really, you always have to remember, oh, oh, there's the captain guy. Yeah. I guess he's kind of lecherous. I didn't really get that from anything he's done so far. He seems like a pretty nice guy to, to you know, take Nazi prisoners on his boat. Yeah. <laughs> In any case. Yeah, they do really try hard to make that guy into a character, but I don't know why. Yeah. So anyway, Marion's taken, the Ark is taken onto the submarine, Indy gets onto the submarine, sits on top, and he travels hundreds of miles. Thousands of miles, even. I don't know how far they go. Yeah. On top of a submarine. Yep. He's. It's, it's a great fucking cut, because it's just like, he... he so like because they're all like, "Where's Indy?" Because they can't find him on the ship. It's like, wh- wh- "Where did he go?" And then they're like, "Look out there!" And you see him swimming. 
He swims up, he gets onto the submarine, he gets onto the top of the submarine, and then it fades into the map thing and shows the dotted line moving to wherever they're going, and then it fades back in, and you see Indy's, he's all, like, wet, he's just, like, drenched. He was sat on top of a submarine when it went underwater. He would fucking be dead. There's... Or he wouldn't have been on the sub. He would have come back up for air. Yeah, no, I mean, there's... He would be dead. They, yeah. There's no possible way. They just, like, expect us to somehow believe that he can breathe underwater just, like, in between that fade. It's an archaeological skill. Yeah. He's... All right. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure in the process he also somehow managed to destroy the city of Atlantis or something. <laughs> there's a, there's a mid-quill in there. Yeah. Short film. All right, so, final section of the film. Nazi base. He... It's actually kind of interesting, and I like this beat, where he actually, you have sort of that famous, or sort of iconic action hero moment, where he's got the bad guys at, at gunpoint. In this case, yeah. he's got a bazooka. He's he a, got, who knows where the fuck he picked up that RPG. But he kind of has the potential to end this conflict, blow the shit out of all of them, and save Marion and, and run away. I don't know how he would get off the island. That's something we need to talk he about He can later. just ride on top of a submarine. Oh, no, true, true, true. Just like a, just like a horse. Right. Works the same way. But he doesn't, because Belloc kind of tempts him and says, you know, we, this is history, Indy. And I kind of like that moment, that Indy is done in and by that moment for his own sort of greed, but then he's sort of able to overcome it in the next scene by not looking at it. It's yeah. kind of a nice setup. Um, this is not a movie with huge amounts of character development, mm-hmm. but it feels true to his character that he would not blow up the Ark of the Covenant. But then he would let a bunch of Nazis die. Yeah. Because well, I mean, they're he not kills people. dozens of Nazis throughout the course of this movie. He is he kills a lot of people. He kills a lot of people. Again, teaching impressionable teenagers <laughs> archaeology. Kill people. Yep. That's man just killed dozens of people. And then we have the famous finale to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is where Belloc and the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant. And before we get into that, I want to note a character we forgot to talk about. And this is the yes, moment. The, this is I his, was wondering when we get to this. This is probably why when he didn't mention him. This is probably his best moment in the film. Is that Belloc opens the ark? It's all sand, and then the German man to his right starts laughing maniacally. <laughs> now this man, I forget his name. I'm going to look it up right now. But he is the weird. He's Colonel Dietrich, and he is the Nazi officer who, <laughs> uh, or is it Colonel Dietrich? I think it's Dietrich. Yes. So. Um, Colonel Dietrich is the guy who is always dressed in black. He's sort of the the torturer. He's the interrogator. And we see him several times during the movie, and he is the most entertaining character in Indiana Jones. Yeah, he's, he's my favorite part of Raiders. He's guy. so funny. Yeah, it's he's just... It's so weird because it's such... It's a, really, it's a really minor role. Like, he doesn't do that much. The most I think the most stuff he does is really the when they go to the bar, because yeah. he leads that sort of group of Nazis at the bar. And that's, like, the big thing that he does, and then he gets, like, the map or the thing imprinted on his hand. Yeah. It's like, but then for the rest of the movie, he sort of just, like, pops up and, like, he's, yeah, he's the torturer, the interrogator, but he doesn't really do anything else. He just sort of walks around the set and starts laughing whenever something happens. Okay, so Dietrich, that's not his name, I'm sorry. Dietrich is the other German guy in the movie who doesn't leave much of an impression. Yeah, he's, Dietrich is just, like, the stock villain. The, the guy we're talking about is Arnold Ernst Tote, I guess is his name. Um, he doesn't have a name in the movie, though. Yeah, he's they just, never mention it. But he has such a great personality, where he comes into the bar, and, you know, he's, he's sort of laughing, and he's... he's he, uh, I, I think, Fraulein. Eh, little Fraulein. He's always, like, you can just tell he's so happy. He loves, yeah. he loves his so work, he can't even contain it. 
And, and, you know, he has the great line where she says, you know, I'll tell you whatever we want. And he says, oh, oh, I'm counting on it. And he's about to burn her neck. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's having a good time. He's always having a good time in this movie. And I love he's got, he's always dressed in just layers and layers of black. Yeah, he's got, like, this, like, long leather black coat on. He's always wearing, like, black gloves. He's got his hat. He's got, like, a suit on under the coat. And there's a great shot where they're walking to put the ark in the spot where they're going to open it. And he's still wearing all that yeah. in the hot desert sun. And he's got that shot. He takes off his hat and, like, rubs his sweaty head and then puts yeah, it back on. Yeah. So like, take the coat off, dude. Yeah, he's like, come on. You're in the fucking desert. You can... You can shed a few layers. But I think there are three defining moments for him. One is when he pulls out the coat hanger, but you think it's a torture device? He turns it into a coat hanger, and then he just puts his coat on it. Yeah. That's great. But then there are the two moments where he just laughs maniacally. And yeah. the first is where he they put Indy and Marion into the... Into the <laughs> I'm laughing thinking yeah. about it, because it's so great. They put Indy and Marion into the Well of Souls, and then he just starts cackling and walks away. <laughs> for no real reason, he just... Finds it really fucking funny that they're probably going to suffocate to death down there. Yep. And then when they open the ark and it's just sand, he thinks that's great. <laughs> yeah, which, to me, that's, that's the defining moment for his character because, like, up to that point, yeah, he's been kind of crazy and laughing and stuff. But this is what the entire mission was supposed to be about. And then once Belloc opens it up and, like, it's filled with sand, and the dude just starts laughing and, like, he doesn't give a shit about any of this stuff. He just wants to torture people. That's the only reason that dude's here. He doesn't give a fuck about the Ark of the Covenant, and he thinks it's fucking hilarious that the mission failed. So it's like, and it just gives you this impression that if Hitler himself had been standing there and opened up the Ark of the Covenant, the dude still would have laughed his ass off, probably even more. Even if they would have shot him, he'd have died laughing. Yeah, he would have just thought it was fucking hilarious. So anyway, they open the Ark of the Covenant, souls come out, they fuck shit up, awesome scene, great music, great effects. I mean, I have no idea how they did that scene in 1981. Looks awesome. Yeah. Fucking dude gets his face melted off. <laughs> yep. You got faces melting, faces exploding. Melting. Yeah. It's good. It's good times. Now, the face melt technology, too, it's like, that is a cool effect. Yeah. So, it's like, I think there's a layer of ketchup in there is what it looks like when the blood melts off. And then yeah. there's the whole layer of white stuff melting off. I'm not sure what that is. Bone? Yes, probably. Who knows? Anyway, good ending to the movie. And then you sort of have the weird ending with, uh, where they're, you know, top, top men. <laughs> and Indy's kind of mad, and he and Marion go out to dinner, and I assume it's going to be a really shitty dinner for Marion, because Indy's distracted and mad. Yeah. And then you get the birth of the X-Files, where the <laughs> dude's just, like, taking the, like, big crate through the just giant fucking warehouse filled with crates. And that's how the movie ends. And I've always wondered, what exactly is that meant to be implying? Like, what is all the, like, what does the fuck does the government have down there? <laughs> Just, like, thousands of Arcs of the Covenant? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I mean, I, I guess because they establish it as being Area 51 in the fourth movie, but Area 51 wouldn't have existed in the 30s. No. It's post-World War II, man. Yep. Get your shit straight. <laughs> Jones movies. Alright, so that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do we have anything else to say about it? I think we, we missed a, a critical point, but this is like a running theme for the under, other Indiana Jones movies, but we skipped over the Looney Tunes. <laughs> oh, yes. I think, because that's something that 
most people forget about the Indiana It's something I had forgotten about the Indiana Jones movies until I rewatched them. It's something I think should be addressed in some way is yes. the Looney Tunes. So, Steven Spielberg, it should be said, has an incredibly simplistic sense of humor. Very childish, one might say. He, he just likes physical humor. So he puts... Louis, really cheesy physical humor. So he likes just injecting his films, and it's particularly these Indiana Jones movies, with sort of cheap physical gags. And I think the defining one in Raiders is Marion is getting chased by the bad guys in Cairo. Yeah. So she finds a pan. And she's like, oh my god, I just got a pan. And the other guy's got a knife. And she's like, ah, uh, she runs away, runs into a door, like an empty door. Yeah. Or, or, you know, hall. And then the guy comes in. We hear the blam! Yeah. And then she falls over. She pulls his body in and she runs out. That, I've seen Daffy Duck do that. Yeah, that is literally a Looney Tunes joke. Yes. And it feels totally fucking out of place to me. Whatever. Because there's, there's the other one when they're on the boat and she smacks him in the chin with the mirror. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> like, what the hell is that? Like, what the, why are those jokes in there? I've... I, I don't understand. I don't understand the, those parts of the movies. They make very little sense. They make they make so little sense. <laughs> They're so completely out of place amid like the the high action, like the people just getting killed, all the like crazy mystical stuff, and then ah, uh, like physical jokes. Yeah, you get hit in the face with a frying pan. It's funny. It's just that's what Steven Spielberg likes to do. Who knows? Maybe in the Abraham Lincoln movie, Abe will like slip on a banana peel. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, he should just, Steven Spielberg, he should just go all out and just do, like, Looney Tunes skits, like, full-on skits, like, just remake cartoons in his movies, like, do, like, Abraham Lincoln as, like, Daffy Duck as, like, Robin Hood, and doing the whole thing where he fights Porky Pig as the friar. Just do that, just do that in the movie, just get it out of your system, Abraham Lincoln, like, that's how Abraham Lincoln gets killed, is he's, like, fighting Porky Pig. (laughs) Alright, so Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now we enter the best part of this podcast, and that is going to be discussing a little movie called Indiana Jones and And the the Temple Temple of Doom. So, I think the best way to describe Temple of Doom is that if you're going to watch it, you have to watch it in the right way. If you're going to judge it as an Indiana Jones movie, as like one of these films that we view Indiana Jones as being, like Raiders or Last Crusade, it's not going to work. If you want to view it as a film itself, like a a Hollywood movie that you are sort of familiar with the style of, it's not going to work that way either. If you want to view it just sort of as a film that could feasibly exist in this dimension, it doesn't really work. Because Temple of Doom exists in its own bubble. And that bubble exists outside of space and time and normal sort of film elements. It exists outside of racial sensitivity. It exists outside of logic or physics or anything like that. It exists outside of continuity within Indiana Jones, because there's no way Henry Jones Jr. could go back to his museum and just start teaching again after experiencing what he goes through in this. Yeah. And then supposedly this being a prequel, it's like it really colors the other movies, that it's like when you watch Raiders and realize that just like a year ago he went through all the shit in Temple of Doom. It's like, dude's messed up. He's got some issues. So, yeah, I mean, again, Indiana Jones acts nothing like Indiana Jones in Temple of Doom. He's basically Han Solo if Han Solo was even more misogynistic and abusive. Yeah. (laughs) It's just an awkward film. But if you view it in that bubble where it is just, it is an island unto itself, it is its own entity, 
I think it is perfect. It, at what it yeah. attempts to do, or it, not even attempt to do, at what it is, it is the flawless representation of what it is. I just happen to have no fucking clue what it is. <laughs> you know, I don't know what... I don't know what anyone was thinking when they were making this movie. I don't know how how this movie got made. I don't know how they looked at the script and didn't just realize, what the fuck is half of this stuff? Yeah. I don't know how Steven Spielberg got on the set, would do a Looney Tunes joke, and then shoot a scene where a dude gets his heart pulled out of his chest. Still beating heart. Yeah. That then gets set on fire while Mola Ram, like, laughs maniacally. I don't know how that happened. I don't. I don't understand how that happened. I have no idea how it happened. It's like the movie just came into existence out of, it's like it was just it was just born. It didn't it didn't wasn't created, it just kinda happened. And it's glorious. Now, again, if you view it in its own bubble, I think this is the most fun of the three Indiana Jones films. Yeah, no, totally. It's such a fun movie to watch. Such a ludicrous, insane fun movie to watch. I mean, where do we even start this discussion? There's so many things to talk about. I, you have to start at the beginning because yeah. the beginning is so fucking weird, especially when you have like once you get to the end of the movie and think back. Yes. So beginning of the movie, it's basically a James Bond opening. Yeah, it's completely a James Bond opening. Yes. Down to the way Indiana is introduced into the film. But let's just start. We we, we start the movie with the the gag or not the gag, but we always have the Paramount Mountain melt into another mountain. Yeah. And in this case, that mountain is on a gong. And the gong is rung, and then all these beautiful women run out of it. And they're, you know, a cabaret. Yeah. And they're going to sing. and, and Shanghai, I believe. And Willie Scott, who will be our female protagonist for the evening, is Unfortunately. there. Unfortunately. Yes. And she starts singing Anything Goes in Chinese. And Anything Goes is obviously a famous Broadway song from a famous Broadway musical. It's called Anything Goes. Which, if you think about it, would have come out about this exact time in history. Because it's a 30s musical. It may even be anachronistic that it's there. Yeah, I don't know when any... I don't know. I have to look that My up. My familiarity with the song Anything Goes extends entirely to it being one of the songs in Fallout 3. So, yes, that's it. It's awesome in Fallout 3. Yep. Okay, Anything Goes came out in 1934. Okay, so, so that would have been fine. Just under the wire. Yeah, this it made like its way. This ago. made its way to China and was translated, and Willie knows enough Chinese to sing it that way. And it's a big musical number where first it just seems like it's kind of pleasant. They're just singing the song. And then they transform into a soundstage. Yeah, it's like they're they're on the stage in the cabaret. And then all of a sudden they're in a completely different fucking place. They're in space. Yeah, they just, I know, they trans they transport into the dream sequence in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, yeah, they're on this like glittery soundstage. They're all running around. They're all singing. Who knows where the fuck this is? It sure as shit is not on the stage. They just ran. It's like five times bigger. It looks completely different, and nobody else is there but the dancers. So, fuck if I know what's going on. And then they come back into reality. Who knows what the fuck happened? Everyone took LSD. Yeah, what were all those people watching? Like, I can only assume that at some point they had gone back into, like, the hole that they came out of, and on the other side was a giant soundstage, and they just performed for a wall. (laughs) Who fucking knows? So, the song ends, we have all the opening credits running over the song, and then... We never mention that again. Yeah, just ignore that. Just ignore the The temporal, spatially displaced... Everyone, every number. Yeah, now we know we're in a club because now we see the club and there's all the Chinese. It's in Shanghai, a bunch of Chinese people there. They're all clapping, and then we see the staircase. And Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, in a white tuxedo comes walking down. Literally, this is how James Bond is introduced in like half of his films. Yeah. From it's framed from the back, he's walking down. He looks cool. He's suave. He's got you know a drink in his hand. 
and uh, turns out he's making a deal with some Shanghai gangsters. Far, far removed from archaeology at this point. Because yeah, he's making knows a, what the fuck he's, he's doing there. He's making illicit deals from like for diamonds, for artifacts. But then it kind of goes south. So he grabs Willie and just puts a knife to her side and yeah. says he's going to kill her. Indiana Jones, people! Yep. Hero! And this is our hero. Takes a completely innocent, albeit incredibly annoying, singer and just threatens her life for the uh, diamonds. And I should note, Willie could not be portrayed as any more vain or, like, selfish. Or because, just stupid. Yeah, because she wants this fucking diamond. She's like, diamonds? Even though she's got a knife put to her chest. She wants the diamond, and like yep. when it starts, we do this weird Looney Tunes sequence where the diamond is getting kicked all over the floor, and she's running after it, and that's all she wants is money. Yep. So anyway, but it's, it's kind of funny, because some people say, you know, that one action, he like holds the knife up to Willie, that seems out of character. It's completely in character for this movie. Yeah. In the Temple of Doom bubble, makes total sense. He would do that. Yeah, no, totally. Especially, he, like, based on the shit he does later, it's nothing. Yeah. No. So he, he threatens Willie, winds up kidnapping her, brings her out, they, they like fall through the roof, and then they fall into a car, and we meet the greatest Indiana Jones character of all time. Yes, the, the shining star of Temple of Doom. Short round. The greatest, the greatest performance in the Indiana Jones movies is, is Short Round. There's no doubt about it. He makes this movie fun for me. He does. And, and we are actually, I, with Short Round, we're saying this without irony. Oh, yeah, no, totally. I love Short Round. I love Short Round, too. And I don't, I don't love him in any sort of ironical way. I think he really is a good character. A really good character. Yeah. He's got a lot of heart to him. You really love watching him. He's like, he's, he's kind of three-dimensional, even, where you see he really does love Indy, and he kind yeah. of needs him as a parent figure, but he's kind of grown up in a dark world. And he's going to go into a way darker world than a little yeah. bit. And he is the hero of this film because he's the one who acts selflessly all yeah. the time and really wants to help people. And <laughs> it's great. And that kid is so much fun. Even when you can't understand half the words that come out of his mouth because he's just shouting. Like, yeah, every every line he has, he just shouts at the top of his lungs. <laughs> yep. it's just, that's, that's part of Short Round. That's what makes him great. He's, he's awesome. He's got so much enthusiasm. He does. So anyway, he's driving the car. Apparently he's a getaway driver. Yeah. Indy has basically taken this street orphan and turned him into a criminal. Yep. Maybe he's kidnapped this singer along with him. So they so made him complicit in the kidnapping as well. Yes. So Short Round takes Indy and Willie. They drive away. There's a car chase. It's pretty cool. And then they get onto a plane, and there's a great gag here where he says, you know, So long, Lao Tang! And then they close <laughs> the door, and it says... Loud tank. Because he owns the plane. And then the guy laughs maniacally, and we should mention that. Yeah, no, this is a, this is another running straight in the Indiana Jones movies. Characters laughing at the top of their fucking lungs for no reason whatsoever. It's so... It, it's the mischievous villain laugh, but where most movies do the mischievous villain laugh, like, once, and they realize it's really cartoonish, but they do it, like, once, Indiana Jones movies, it's constantly, especially in Temple of Doom, it's, like, every two seconds... There's a mischievous villain laugh. Yep. So, they, they're on the plane, and... I <laughs> This whole sequence is so fucking bizarre, right? It's great. I can't talk about it without laughing. So they get on the plane, and we see that the, the people flying the plane are contract killers for Lao Tang, or whatever yeah. his name is. And instead of just kind of, while they're in the air, turning around, guy takes a gun, shoots all three people, they're done. Yeah, because they're all asleep on the plane at this point. Yes. Instead, they fly... We actually do the map thing, where they fly way yeah. the hell out. They're in the they're, middle of... Yeah, they're over India at this point. Which, it's from just, Shanghai, is a pretty long way. Yeah. So they fly all the way into India, and then the guys, again, laughing their asses off, 
<laughs> get up. They walk up. They're very careful they, not yeah, to wake them up. Not to wake them up. They put on some parachutes, open the door, and jump the fuck out of the plane. It's just like that is the most stupid roundabout way of trying to kill someone is to get them on a plane and then jump out of the plane while it's in midair. And you could just perfectly well just kill them in their sleep. You could throw them out of the plane if you want. Yeah, you could yeah, throw their asses out of the fucking plane. Instead, not only do you not for sure kill them, because you know, of course, this is a movie, of course they survive, but you just, like, you just jumped out of the plane with a parachute that's in the middle of fucking nowhere over a giant snow-covered mountain in India when you're <laughs> supposed to be in fucking Shanghai or wherever. They're going to die. I mean, those two people will die. Yeah, probably. Because who knows how far away they are from civilization. The fucking... We don't see them bring supplies. They're, just, they're basically kamikaze agents with a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, it's like, what, what most, what's the most ridiculous way we can both ensure our deaths and the deaths of these people on board? Fuck it, let's just jump out of the fucking plane. That's a great idea. So, then we get the most ridiculous survival method of all time. Oh, with a great Willy line here. Where Indy and Short Round are working on how they're going to save the day. And, and Willy's in the front saying, If they're here, let's find the way! <laughs> I love yeah. it. There's that great... She's just like... it's in. It's, you can, cannot understand a word she says. Yeah. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. While Indy decides the best way to survive, instead of flying the plane, because he can do that. We learned that later. Yeah. He knows how to fly a plane. He takes a raft. Not even a raft. It's just a big yellow inner tube. Yeah, it's like this big inflatable sort of raft thing. And he, in, he wraps himself, Short Round and Willie, up in it. And then they just jump out. No, but you forget... This is... I have to say, this is the only good... Willy line. This is like the good Willy line in the whole movie. Actually, okay, there's another one at the very, very end. But I do. I legitimately like this line when he gets the raft. She says, "We're not sinking. We are falling." And I love that fucking line because it's like, yeah, no, you're not sinking. That raft ain't gonna do shit for you. But Sean, it saves their lives. No, they no, they died at this point. The rest is just like a fever dream. Is they're like. They're, bodies are just broken, and they're lying with, like, hypothermia on the side of that mountain. And that's how the rest of the movie comes about. They died in the sequence. I think that's a perfectly fair explanation. It's yeah. better than... It's as good as any other. Yeah. So, they jump out. They haven't even inflated the raft at this point. They let it inflate in midair, which I don't know if that's even possible. No, 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 no. Because they're falling down. The, the raft would not have opened up with the, the speed they were falling. There's no possible way. Instead... The raft just sort of opens up and they fall gently down to the ground on and the they, side of the mountain. And they and suddenly they're in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like you're very much on the side of this big sort of snowy mountain, and then it's like all of a sudden you're on like yeah, you're going down like there's these rapids in Colorado out of fucking nowhere. Right. So they they're they're sledding at one point and they're rafting. There's water everywhere. They go off a giant cliff. Another <laughs> they go one. off the waterfall. And then they just land in water and they're fine. Even though we see jagged rocks that would kill them all yeah. in an instant. And so finally they sort of make it to land and they're safe and suddenly the scenery switches from Colorado to India. Yeah, now we're in India now. So. And, and very nice location photography. So let's take a moment here, Sean, and ask ourselves, this section of the film, what does it have to do with the next section of the film? Fucking nothing. <laughs> nothing. Literally nothing. Just to get them there, that's it. Yeah, that, that's it. And you could have come up with... I mean, he could have just been in India. The only, it's like, the only function this introduction serves is to bring Willie and Short Round along. But you could have done that in any number of ways and not have this super convoluted, super lengthy, what the fuck from Shanghai over to India. 
But again, in the context of Temple of Doom, where randomness is the order of the day, it kind of makes sense. It's like fate yep. is bringing them there. Shiva... Yeah, Shiva's she, just moving them along, like how the Christian god usually works in stories. I guess that's how Shiva does things now. Yeah, so Shiva brings them there. They're in India. They find this village, and the movie gets dark. Yeah, movie... Where we have all these starving, you know, down-on-their-luck, sad people explaining how all their children were kidnapped along with their sacred rock. Yep. They're taken to this evil castle temple, and they convince Indy and Short Round and Willie to go there, and they give them some elephants, which is the most awesome method of transportation ever. So, But of course, Willie doesn't appreciate it. No. Willie can't be a likable or enjoyable character, have any sort of fun or enthusiasm throughout the entire course of the movie. No, she's just a shrill. Yeah. And so they ride on their elephants, and then we have one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where at night, <laughs> at night, yeah. they stop their elephants, they're going to st- spend the night there, and Indian Short Round are playing cards. Well, Willie, first she sees, I think, a snake. Yeah. Then she sees uh, an owl, I'm like, she's running around screaming her head off. It is the most ridiculous fucking scene. Yeah, she's just, like, running around the camp, just, like, running off camera, running into some animal, screaming, running in the other direction, running into a different animal, screaming, running... <laughs> it happens, like, five fucking times. And while this is going on, Indy and Short Round are playing poker, and, and Short Round is accusing Indy of cheating, so Short Round is shouting at the top of his lungs. Yeah. So it's all these intelligible screams going back and forth for about five minutes. And then it gets even better because she falls in water or something, she's wet. She, while she's drying off by the fire, she and Indy are talking. And the elephant just starts whacking her in the, <laughs> the head with the trunk. And it could not have been planned. There's no, there's no way this could have been planned. I mean, you can, you can almost see Willie just, like, breaking character yeah. a few times. Just, just, like, just, just having this really serious conversation. And, like, every single shot, the elephant just smacks her in the back of the head with the trunk. It's fucking hilarious. And is that where Short Round just starts laughing his ass off at her, or is that later? I mean, it's, it's happened several times. Yeah, Short Round has the best reactions to Willie, where he basically, I don't even think it was in character. I think yeah. the kid, the actor, just saw what was going on and just started laughing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. Lots of good stuff here. And then they arrive at the castle, and to me, this is where it becomes yet another movie for a little bit. Yeah. Where they're at this, you know, castle, and they meet all these people, and they seem like pretty reasonable people. And then we get into the dinner scene, where they are served a massive, like, python anaconda thing. Yeah, that they open up, they, like, cut it open, and it's filled with, I couldn't quite tell, it was, like, either, like, other little tiny snakes or, like, leeches or something like that inside the snake. And they start slithering out, people start eating them. This is the height of the film's racism, I think. Yeah. It's the food scene where it's, like, Indian people, of course they eat snakes filled with other snakes. <laughs> and they, they're, no they're served are. bugs and monkey brains. Chewed monkey brains. Yes, and... It, <laughs> And you have the weird Indian guy just slurping monkey brains. Yeah. And what's great about this scene is this is the key expositional scene of the film. Or one of them. Yeah. So Indy at the end of the table is talking to like the British general guy about what's going on here. But we can't focus on any of it because at the other end, Willie is screaming about monkey brains. Yeah. And Short Round, to his credit, is grossed out too, as he's wanted. I mean, you can be grossed out by that. Yeah, when they cut open the snake and a bunch of little other snakes crawl out onto the dinner table and you have to catch them and eat them alive. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair responses to be a little creeped out by that. At least Short Round doesn't just start screaming. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. Yes. So, alright. That all happens. And yeah, that all happens. That all happens. And then they go back to their rooms. And Indy and Mary... Okay, and in this scene, Harrison Ford just starts playing Han Solo. Yeah, no, he totally turns into Han Solo. There's just like, there's just a scene, he turns, 
He's Han Solo now. He's not even Indiana Jones. No. He's Han Solo. He walks out into the hall and he starts hitting on Willie. Why he starts hitting on Willie, I don't know. She's, she's physically attractive to a certain degree. She's also really annoying. Yeah, and he's also th- threatened her with physical violence multiple times and kidnapped her. We yes. need to stress this point. She was just working as a singer at a bar in Shanghai because Indy was there and threatened her life and dragged her along with him. She has now been taken all the way to India and in the shitty, like, in these just shitty circumstances... She's completely not... I mean, she's really annoying, but at least she has a reason to be really mad and, like, yes. shouting at everything that happens to her. Because there's no reason she should be in this situation. She's been taken there completely against her will. But now, she wants to fuck Indiana Jones. Just kind of out of nowhere. But neither of them want to admit they want to fuck each other. So they have this really hostile back and forth. Where really gonna... awkward, just not well-written... Romance. No, it's romance. not. It's not romantic in the slightest. Like, I wonder if if Spielberg read this part of the script and just like he has a really weird idea of romance, and he's like, "It's so sweet." He, she says she's not easy. He says, "You know, I'll get you, sister, or whatever." They go back to their rooms, and then they get really mad because the other doesn't come over and fuck them. Yeah, just and it's like, and they have not shared a single romantic moment together, not a one. And then this scene happens, and it's just like. Throwing double entendres all over the place. There's no sort of pretense about it. It's like they just want to fuck. It just like came out of nowhere. And if they want to do it, you know, just do it. Get it, get it over with. You don't have to do a big like flirting with it. Just you know, well, they have to get all their double entendres out of the system. That's, that's true. So they get all their double entendres out of their system. They storm back into their rooms, showing how dysfunctional they both are. Yeah. And then Indy, <laughs> then there's the guy who must have been hiding there for hours. He's just standing, he's like painted himself to look like the wall. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then he comes out and, and starts fighting Indy. And he's killed in the most gruesome way possible. And the other great part about this is that Short Round's just sitting in, in <laughs> Indy's room like he's asleep. And Indy's having this like loud fist fight. It's not even like they're being quiet about it. He's in a fist fight with this dude. And Short Round's just asleep for the half of the fight scene. And then Short Round wakes up to sort of see Indy wrap his whip around the guy's neck, throw it into the fan, and see the guy be hanged by the fan. Yeah. It's fucking gruesome. It's really, it's a really gruesome death. So he leaves Short Round there with the corpse. And then he runs across the hall to check on Willie. And Willie is so oblivious, she thinks Indy is, like, intentionally ignoring her. It's it's this weird fucking moment where, like, because Indy's run into the room and he's looking around everywhere because he thinks there's, like, someone, there's an assassin going to be in Willie's room. And so he's looking past her, he doesn't say anything, she's like, oh, Indy, I'm right here, I'm right, right here. And you get this weird sense that for, like, a brief moment, Willie thought that she turned invisible. Like, that's what it felt like to me, where she was like, I'm here! I'm right here! And he was like, oh god, I've turned invisible, is what she was about to say before he moved on and started groping the statue. Yes. And then he, and I cannot stress this strongly enough, because of their weird flirtations, he uncovers the Temple of Doom. <laughs> there is, there, the, the, the step point A to B is that because he and Willie have their dysfunctional flirting, that is why he uncovers yeah. the Temple of Doom. He gropes the statue, which has boobs, and she's like, I'm right here, and it's the stupidest line in the movie. Yeah, it's like, and it could have been a pretty funny little moment, but they just, they turn it into a thing that didn't need to be, and it's like, didn't need to have a line there. Just a look. No. But no, she has to say, it's like, oh, I'm right here, Indy. It's like, okay, yeah, thanks for pointing out that he's groping the statue to find the secret passageway. Thanks. So he pushes the statue and finds the secret passageway, and then... 
The timing here is great. That's when Short Round runs in, and there's been just enough time for him to get the body down and probably hide it. Yeah, that's like, you, you have no idea what the fuck Short Round has been doing in the room with the dead body hanging from the ceiling fan. But I imagine he has expressed, in, you know, instructions from Indiana Jones that, you know, Short Round, whenever I kill anyone, dispose of the body. Yeah. So he probably disposed of the body. Yep. Body's gone, Dr. Jones. It's okay, Dr. Jones. They not find us this time. <laughs> Alright, so he and Shortround go into the temple, and there's bugs, and they... This, the, this is, you have the weirdly out-of-proportion ecosystem. This time it's bugs instead of snakes. Yep. So Who thousands, knows how many insects were killed in the making of that scene. Yeah. Thousands of bugs, and there's the, the thing where the room is compressing. It's actually, it's exactly the trash compactor scene from... Oh yeah, no, it's the trash Wars. compactor scene from Star Wars. But instead of, instead of vertical, it's horizontal, and it's in Indiana Jones. And instead of C-3PO being sort of the annoying person who has to stop it, it's Willy. But Willy's even more incompetent. Yeah. C-3PO can at least speak millions of languages. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Willy... Willy can speak some Chinese. She can sing Maybe, some Chinese. Yeah. Who knows if she can speak it? So anyway... They save the day, and then they go into the temple. And up to this point, the movie has had some dark flourishes, but mostly it's kind of been totally consistent. Yeah, it's, it's been an unfair, like, just, like, adventure action movie up to this point. And then... Then you find the Temple of Doom. Sean, would you like... Should we both explain what happens in this scene, or should you just do it? And Here, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So... Again, this movie has been pretty normal. I mean, we should point out, like, the color scheme so far has been just all sort of, like, natural colors. It hasn't been anything crazy. So then they go through, they go through that, like, room, and they come out, and now the color scheme, it's red. It's, like, hellish red and black rocks. It's like you just walked into hell, and you see there is this huge fucking statue of the Hindu god Kali, and there's all these worshippers there, and there's the dude chained up, and then you have your villain... I fucking love this guy. Mola Ram, I believe his name is. He's like sort of the priest, and you see he's conducting this ritual where he fucking... He reaches into the dude's chest, pulls his beating heart out. He's like... The dude is chained up into this big contraption that's like chained up to the ceiling. They like close it up. The guy's still alive. The guy is still alive. Like they, they pulled out his still beating heart. The guy's still alive. He gets lowered down into a pit of lava. Then when he hits the bottom, the the heart lights on fire and Mullah Rob just starts cackling his fucking ass off. And this whole scene is... And I've just, like, everything that happens, there's only a few things that happen, but they take their fucking time. It's, it's like a five-minute scene. The music is super fucking dark and sadistic. And it's just this, like, whole scene is this weird self-contained moment of insanity. You have nothing that you, there's no reason you would expect something like this to have happened. You just walk onto this, like, crazy heavy metal music video set and see a dude get his still-beating heart taken out and light on fire and he gets lowered into a pit of lava. Yes. Yeah. It, and I want to, here's another thing I think we should stress with this, is that while it's weird, it's a spectacularly produced scene. Oh, it's a really well done scene. Like, the music and the editing is great in this the scene. The pacing is just perfect, yeah. but it's so dark and weird and, and indie- completely out of place. Yeah, and Indy and Short Round and Willie are watching this. They're scarred forever, yeah. having seen this fucking blood ritual. Magical blood ritual yeah. where hearts are just magically ripped out, blood dripping from it. It's. I mean, they don't even do like a cartoonish movie heart. It's. It's a no, real it, heart. Yeah, it's a still beating heart that lights a flame. <laughs> it's insane. It's completely 
fucking insane. And then Indy does the stupidest thing he has done in his entire life. He decides he's going to go down there and steal back the sacred stones just because people left and he assumes they vanished forever. <laughs> that's like that's one of my favorite parts is that they do that whole ritual and then everyone just kind of leaves. Like they don't even stick around for a couple of minutes. It's like, okay, we did that. Uh, let's let's just that's it, guys. Let's go home for today. Let's like you did a good job. Let's let's convene here tomorrow. Yep. And sacrifice someone else. Yeah. Then Indiana Jones goes down to try to get the sacred stone like a fucking idiot. Yeah. He takes all the stones. He's you know again pillaging a religious temple. Even though you can't really blame. At this point, it's like. What the fuck is going on? Yeah. You can't really blame him for not being a good archaeologist I mean, now. You're, yeah, you're watching this movie at this point with your mouth agape. Like, what am I watching? I Where is this going to go from here? He gets back. They're all captured. And again, I mean, the movie only gets darker from here. Yep. Because then we see all the child slavery and abuse. There's kids being whipped. It, it's dark. It's like they're, they're breathing in soot yeah. and dirt and all this stuff. And then Indy is, like, chained up and forced to drink the blood of Kali while Short Round is just whipped mercilessly. And who knows what the fuck's happening to Willie at this point. Yeah. Indy is turned evil. He goes out and, you know, he's torturing Willie. He puts her in the, the contraption. She's lowered down. It's dark. It's super fucking dark. It's intense. It's actually legitimately frightening, I think, even. Uh, and Short Round is trying to save Indy as Indy is, you know, he's become Kalima. Yeah, Kalima. Kalima. And, and, and poor Willie is raised up and down and up and yeah. down in this contraption over a pit of lava. She, she probably have permanent burns all over her yeah. body if she lived. I mean, now it's like, she can be as annoying as she wants. She went to hell and back. Yeah. <laughs> so she's lower, you know, she's raised out and... Again, the number of events that happens in the second half of the movie is pretty minor. I mean, that happens, and then the sort of short round saves Indy by burning him. He's back to yeah. normal. And then they sort of all decide they're going to go, you know, escape. And he, they save the children, then there's some fist fights, then they do the minecart chase, they get out onto the bridge, movie's over. Yeah. So it's pretty... But it all happens with this sort of meticulous pacing. And again, it's really, really well done. Yeah. It's really good pacing. It's just really... Weird that, that it exists at all. Yeah, that we had this sort of normal-ish Indiana Jones movie, and then now this is happening. Yeah, out of fucking nowhere. But you, but yeah, we're at the point where Indiana Jones has turned evil. He is drinking the blood. He, he drank the blood of Kali. It's like they're almost going to kill Willie, and then Short Round comes over, and you get this great where Indiana Jones just backhands <laughs> Short Round in the fucking face, and Short Round falls on the ground, and it's really weird. How the most convincing punch in an Indiana Jones movie is when Indiana Jones slaps a Chinese boy in the face. <laughs> it does not look faked. At yeah, it all. looks like he got fucking slapped by Harrison Ford. That poor little kid. He, he's probably just terrified of all Harrison Ford movies now. Yeah, he hears the term Millennium Falcon and just like cowers and cries in his sleep. Yeah, it's just you get you get. Not only is there child slavery and child abuse, but there's child abuse by the main character. Granted, he's been possessed by whatever the, the stuff from Prometheus or whatever, but <laughs> still, he slapped Short Round in the face. And then Short Round has... There's actually an oddly touching moment here where Short Round says, you know, Indy, I love you! And then burns him with the thing to save him. And then there's a moment that... Love burns, bitch! <laughs> So then Indy's sort of, he's still pretending to be bad, so he, he kind of holds Short Round out over the lava and winks at him. 
<laughs> and and we made the great joke watching it that wouldn't it be funny if he was just yeah if Indiana Jones was still evil at this point he was just trying to fuck with him and make him think oh I'm good yeah wink wink He's and then like, he just throws him in yeah and then just drops him it's like take that bullshit <laughs> but that does not happen short round lives short round lives he pulls Willie back up and uh, there's a bunch of fighting. Yeah. So, so I don't think at this point we can really go point by point. But what points do you want to talk about? First of all, we forgot the best Molaram moment where in this <laughs> sequence, Molaram's still over there. And then Indiana Jones, he's turned good now and he's fighting people and he's going to go after Molaram. And then Molaram gets on the ground at the foot of the statue. And then the floor under the statue... Come out, Molaram rolls out of the statue, laughing while he does it. It's like a fucking Scooby Doo thing. It's just this is the most strange way for a villain to escape for the like the second third of the movie. He's like, bye bye, ha 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 ha. And he just like rolls out. It's like, okay then, it's great. It's awesome, yeah. and it makes me think because there's another big Scooby Doo moment in Last Crusade with like turning doors yeah why did they not get Steven Spielberg to make the Scooby-Doo movie he could have made a great Scooby-Doo movie who knows who like could Steven... have starred Tom Hanks as Fred what I don't understand is why doesn't Steven Spielberg just make a Scooby-Doo-esque movie or a Looney Tunes-esque movie <laughs> instead of putting those things in other kinds of movies it doesn't make any sense to me. To be fair in Temple of Doom, that moment does not feel out of place. Yeah, it's, no, no one would do that. Yeah, it's so fucking over the top and ridiculous. Like, I want to say it's like something I've seen, but I don't know where I've seen something like that. No. Where the villain just fucking has a trap door at the foot of a giant statue and rolls out. <laughs> laughing while he does yeah, it. Yeah, laughing maniacally while he does it. But it's like... Molaram is like a video game boss. That's what it reminds me of. It's like like Bowser or <laughs> Dr. Eggman in Sonic the Hedgehog, where it's, you know, you get to the end of the level, and then you you beat him, but then through some, like, ridiculous contrived way, he escapes, so then you have to go beat him again. That's what Molaram is like this scene. Yes, Molaram is, is awesome. So, like much of this movie. Yeah. So, what other points do we need to cover here? Do we want to talk about the little prince kid who has voodoo dolls? Yeah, the... Because yeah, because earlier the the dinner scene, they reveal oh like the this stupid gag where Willie's going to just like implies that she's just going to stay behind and get with this prince because he's really rich. Then the prince comes out and it's like, oh no, he's like twelve years old, and it's like ha ha ha. ha. Willie's a pedophile. Huh? Yeah, and Willie was going to just stay here in India to just get some money by marrying someone, which I don't really know what she'd use it on in India. Chilled monkey brains. There's, there's plenty of that. Yeah, but now he comes back. I guess he's possessed now by the blood of Kali, and he's got a fucking voodoo doll because that's yeah. an Indian thing. So he's yeah, it's like this whole sequence where Indian is freeing all the prisoners, and he gets in this huge fight. And then while he's doing that, again, huge fucking this time it's a huge fucking Indian dude instead of a huge Nazi guy. He gets in a fist fight with Indiana Jones, but by getting into a fist fight, I mean he beats the fucking shit out of him. And all of that's happening, the little brat's up there with his Indiana Jones voodoo doll poking him in the ass with his... In the with, back. Yeah, in and the back with a pin. And so Indy cannot move. And I should mention, there's a great production story behind this. So throughout the shoot of Temple of Doom, Harrison Ford was experiencing chronic back pain. And eventually, while they were shooting this section of the film underground, it became... Not underground, they were probably on sound stages, yeah. but anyway, it's, it's set underground. 
he was the back pain got so crippling that he couldn't even walk. It was that bad. So he could not shoot the movie. So Spielberg suspended production, said, there's no way I'm putting you through this, Harrison. Put him on the plane to England and had some really great doctors look at him, and they decided to do back surgery. So he was going to be out for about a month. They shut down production for a while, but then they realized, we're going to get way too behind schedule. So they, they started production back up. And for two weeks, while they were waiting for Harrison Ford to come back, they just shot a lot of B-roll stuff from this section, yeah. uh, including most of that fight where they just shot it with Harrison Ford's stunt double. So most of that fight, you can't tell it's really well done. Yeah. But it's his stunt double. And then they just shot the close-ups later on. But that, to me, is so ironic that the scene where Indiana Jones is getting his back tortured to hell was shot while Harrison Ford was having back surgery. Yeah. <laughs> there's just, there's like, there's a level of sadism to this film. Yeah, no, it's, you can almost, I mean, maybe it's because that was in the script that Harrison Ford got actual chronic back pain. Like, that's how weird this movie is, is that it was affecting the real universe. Yes. So anyway, that whole fight happens, and that guy dies horribly. In another incredibly gruesome way, like the first huge dude in the in Raiders, where they're, like, on this sort of conveyor belt moving to this big, like, just, like, roller pin, basically. Yeah. The dude gets his ass flattened by the roller pin, but there's this great thing where he gets flattened, and then it's like it stays on the roller pin just enough that you see some like some blood come up and like come back up around. So it's like even more even though the death was more gruesome technically in Raiders, you didn't see as much of it. Whereas this one, they give you a little bit of blood coming up. It's just like yeah, that dude got crushed to death. <laughs> it's pretty great. So that all happens, and then I'm forgetting. If, I mean, there's a lot of little moments in here, like oh, of course we have to talk about short round saves Indy's ass by going to fight the prince kid. Yeah, beats the shit out of. It's almost weirdly disturbing because they're both like eight to ten year old kids, and it's a it's a grunge fight. It's like yeah, it's like the short round just gets him on the ground and just beating on him like a street version. Yeah, and, like, and while Indiana Jones is doing that to the other guy, it's like supposed to be this really uplifting. It's like oh, short rounds like Indiana Jones. It's like. But he's beating the shit out of another little kid. That's not, you know, that's not, oh, Indiana Jones is raising him to be a good person. That's, Indiana Jones is raising him to be an abusive homicidal maniac. (laughs) Pretty much. But he saves the day. And then, while they're still escaping, short round, it turns out he can do kung fu. Yeah, he didn't use in the fight with the prince. He just, like, went street on the prince's ass and just... (laughs) punched the shit out of him while he was on the ground. But then you find out, because he's Chinese, so he must know Kung Fu. Yeah, and he just... It's pretty awesome, actually, how he takes out some of those kids. Yeah. Uh, and I don't even know... I don't remember where it happens in the movie, but Short Round does get the best action beat of Temple of Doom, which is where he has to escape, and he's, like, stolen something, if I remember correctly. So he has to jump... And, and is, remember, there's the hole in the ceiling. He, like, jumps yeah. in... Like, he has, like... He jumps onto a conveyor belt or something or, like, a rope in the ceiling and slides... I'm not explaining it well, but do you remember the scene? Vaguely. Okay. It's pretty awesome. We were saying it's, like, the kind of thing Indy would do, but he does it even better. And he escapes all these people below him who are trying to kill him. I forget yeah. where it happens, but it happens somewhere in there. Okay, but, that happens. <laughs> Look for it if you're watching Temple of Doom. It happens. <laughs> Fuck you, Sean. <laughs> all right, so anyway... They all get into the mine cart, and this is where the mine cart chase starts. Yeah, like the ten minute long mine cart chase. It's, it's an the, awesome, yeah, awesome, it's a really awesome action set piece. And we, I noted while we were watching it, it looks like the most expensive scene ever filmed. It look, yeah, it's there's some production value in that action set piece. Yeah, yeah. I mean they're they're going over lava. There's caves. There's all these elaborate, elaborate sets. And we do have to wonder, why did they build this massive, massive mine? Like yeah, this? He, okay, this is where we need to address this, because at this point, 
Yeah, you, there's this one. There's one scene. I remember you kind of missed because it's like this one line of dialogue in one scene where it, they explain why they have the child labor thing going on. It's because they're like they need the sacred stones to do like resurrect Kali or whatever they're going to do with Kali and take over the world. But they only have three sacred stones, and the other two ones, the five, because they're five in total. So the other two ones are somewhere lost in these catacombs. And so they have all the children there digging after them, which makes no fucking sense because you, they're not. You don't need to fucking. It's not like you're looking for coal that is naturally there in the earth. You're looking for stone that some jackass put down in those caves. So you don't go excavating into the walls. You go look in the fucking caves that already exist. So they have this super elaborate incredible, like, deep into the mountainside mining facility that's just, like, with the huge, like, rolling pins, they're, like, pulling up huge amounts of earth, and it looks like they're processing it for some reason, looking for, like, rocks on the ground. Don't dig in the wall for rocks on the fucking ground. So all the child labor stuff doesn't even need to be happening. I just assume that Molaram's doing it for laughs, and he just sort of walks around the caves every now and then just, like, kind of looking around for the stones. And he's just like, child labor? Fucking hilarious. Let's just do that. No, we don't need any reason to. Let's build a lot of minecarts, too. It'll be fun. Yep. So the minecart chase, we agree this is just a phenomenal action sequence. Yes, yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's, it's surprisingly high speed. A lot happens. It's pretty violent. I mean, there's a great... One of my favorite beats in this scene is where Indy, like, to fuck up the guys on the other mine track... Mm-hmm. He like throws down this piece of wood, and there's this, so the plank of wood here that's gonna the mine the evil mine cart yeah. is kind of like the guy, mine cart with the, the bad evil mine cart. The mine cart with the bad guys in it is you know it's chugging along. It hits this piece of wood and he's put down, and it goes off like a fucking rocket. Yeah, and you remember this? It's just it like launches like a rocket. Hits while the people are still in it. Hits this other big elaborate mine piece. This like bridge. Yeah, and it hits and knocks out the support beams. And I remember you and I were just like, what the like whoa. <laughs> Like, the, the force it would take to do that. Yeah. And those guys would just be like, every bone in their body would break from that. Yeah. And then the whole thing collapses and explodes. And there's, it's like, it's a, there's not even gasoline or anything. It no, just it, explodes. They built that out of a communication tower, so it's yeah. going to blow up. <laughs> and it explodes. And then Indy and Short Round and Willie get to the end of the mine, and it's, it's like there's water chasing after them. And yeah, just, because Molaram, this, this is another weird part where, like, Molaram's back at the other end. And he, like, has, there's this big water tank, and he has them break the water tank so that the mines get flooded. So the water's coming after them. And then also, once they get to the end of the mine track, the mine track ends at a cliff face. A <laughs> sheer cliff face. Why? Why? Like, yeah, what, this, why, why have a mine cart track that goes to the end of a sheer cliff face? What do you use that for? <laughs> Fucking who knows? Molaram is, you know, it's he's, he's, he's how he gets his kicks. Yeah, I guess. The dude's just fucking crazy. Child slavery and shit. Just no reason. He just kind of wants it. Yep. So, they're on the cliff face. They wind up, you know, kind of crawling down, and they get to the bridge. And the bridge scene is fantastic again. I mean, yeah. this is the thing we need to mention again about Temple of Doom. Every individual scene in this movie is pretty fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's really well made. Yeah. It's just completely insane. Yeah. And so, again, and the bridge scene is another example of being completely insane, where, where Indy is in the middle, he's cornered on both sides, and just shit's going down, and he decides to take the most drastic action he possibly could at this moment, short of just 
killing himself and ending it all, is he wraps his leg around in the rope, which I think that would snap his leg in half. Oh, at le- yeah, it would at least like pull it out of its socket. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And then he raises the, the knife up, and this is where Willie actually has probably her best reaction of the film. It's just saying, oh my god, I yeah. can't believe... Yeah, she's just like, she's and he's going to do, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> He like, just really, well, she's been really annoying. That's where she broke. Like, yeah. That's where she's just, oh, what the fuck it am I doing? It becomes reality to yeah. her. And it's like, you feel for her. You're like, yeah, I'd be saying the same thing. Like, yeah, I'd, oh my god, what <laughs> the fuck am I doing While here? she's wrapping her own leg in it, short round's getting ready, and he raises the sword and chops, and that great visual of, Molop, prepare to meet Kali in hell. Snap! <laughs> and just... He kills countless Indian people as they're as they all fall off the bridge to their yeah. deaths where there's alligators below. Yeah, of course, and there's like ten alligators just at the very in the very middle of where everyone's falling. It's like again, all those alligators alligators are solitary creatures. Alligators do not move in fucking packs. Which I also feel like I need to point out at this point. That there's like the geography of where this movie takes place is completely broken down. Where they were in that minecart track for like ten minutes, so they've moved like a mile, maybe two miles away from their original starting point. But the fucking Indian people are waiting for them at the other end, and then Molaram, who you saw was back at where all the children were, is at the other end of the fucking bridge out of fucking nowhere. So who knows how all the people got there? But anyway, he snaps the bridge, and it's a great action scene as they all have to climb back up. Willie and Short Round get to safety. But then Indian has his final confrontation with Mola Ram. Which, before that, Mola Ram is trying to get up. A guy's in his way. Instead of kind of waiting for the guy to get up, he rips the guy off and throws him to the alligators, laughing again while he does it. Just cackling maniacally. And then Indy and Mola Ram have their final standoff. And Indy just starts shouting, You betrayed Shiva! You betrayed Shiva! You betrayed... He's like, he, like, he says, You betrayed Shiva. Then he says something in Hindu. Yeah. says, You betrayed Shiva. And inside the bag, the stones light on fire. Molaram touches one. It burns his hand. He lets go and falls to his death. Why? I don't know. Shiva? He betrayed Shiva. Yeah, so now the stones turn into lava stones and kill you. Yes. So, should we talk about the possible, like, arc of this movie? Which is that Indy is like... I think this is one way they want you to read the movie. It's like, Indy's a non-believer. He's a rogue, all that. And he's been in this scenario that's so fucking wacky and wild Mm -hmm. that now he can kind of believe in Shiva and believe in what the villagers told him, that Shiva brought him here. Yeah. And in that sense... In that context, and in that moment, he, f- he realizes as he fulfills his arc by recognizing, you betrayed Shiva, I'm Shiva's messenger, I'm going to kill you, and then he saves the day by doing that. The whole movie actually makes sense in context under that reading, because the randomness of it, yeah, it works. Is that Shiva is actually guiding Indy. I don't think that's what they thought of when they were making the movie, no. but you can see it in that light. Yeah. It's still really fucking weird. Though. It's still really fucking weird. Yeah. I'm just saying it's odd that there actually is an explanation for all that. And really weird that Shiva would just randomly pick Indiana Jones to be, <laughs> like, the great agent to defeat the worshippers of Kali. Yes. So, portrayed Shiva, they get down, he gets up to the top, they're cornered again... 
but the British army comes in and they just mow the fuck down. This is such a weird part of the movie because I'd completely forgotten that this happens because if you would remember in the dinner scene, there was a British general there. And this is also, this is around the time where it's like, you know, Britain is still, I think Britain is still occupying India. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's still like the British Empire extends over to India. It's like terrible, evil imperialist policies and everything. And then you have this really weird moment, yeah, where they get cornered by a bunch of the cultists again, and then the British army comes in with a bunch of Indian people working in the for the British Empire, and they just kill all the cultists, and all the cultists have, like, bows and arrows and swords, and all the British Empire have, like, Lee Enfield rifles. So you have this weird, like, pro-imperialist thing just thrown in, thrown in there where they just mow down the crazy, savage, <laughs> native Indian people... Just get slaughtered by the noble, dignified, civilized British people. It's like, well, that was weird. He's kind of throwing out a weird message in their movie. And they don't even leave any of them alive. We see them just mow them all down. Yeah, they just kill them. It's like, okay, Jesus Christ. And that then, was weird. And then Indy and Willie and, and the short round go back to the village. They return the children. They return the stones. And then we have the creepiest love scene ever. Where Indy just, I mean, not ever, but in yeah. Indiana Jones, certainly, where he whips Indy. Like, w- Willie, at this point, is understandably exasperated. Yeah, she, she's going to walk off. She's trying to find someone else to take her just away from here. Which, at that point, I don't find her annoying in the slightest. Because, you know what? She deserves that. Yeah, you've been threatened, brutalized, beaten, and kidnapped. And you've probably lost your job that you had. Your really nice job you had in Shanghai for this fucking asshole. And she wants to get away from him. It's like, good, get away from him. He's an abusive asshole to you. And then he takes out his whip and whips her, which would probably like break. Oh, that would that would hurt like hell. Yeah, whipped around the the torso right like that. And then ropes her in. She's still resisting, and he just starts kissing her. And there's just this weird rapey. Yeah, it's yeah, it does not. And but then suddenly she's in love, and the Indiana Jones theme just starts playing, and the movie's over. And it's and you're like, what the fuck did I just watch? Yep. It's like you're released from the film spell. It's like, what was that? Fuck if I know. I have no idea. It's fucking awesome is what it was. Yes. I mean, it was all said and done. <laughs> I cannot stress this enough that just, I don't know what Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is. And I will never know quite what it is. Yeah. But at what it tries to do, it does it flawlessly. It's a perfect movie in its own odd way. Yeah. Like, it, and to me, it's like, it's the most fun to watch of the Indiana Jones films. It's so immensely entertaining and oddly thought-provoking at times. Yeah, because you have to come up with weird explanations for all the shit that goes on in the movie. And I think you and I talked about this many times while we were watching it, because we were watching this on Blu-ray. It looks gorgeous. I think it's the best-looking film of the trilogy by far. Yeah, no, totally. Once, especially once they get into the temple. That is some Those of the most, sets look awesome. There's some of the best production design and lighting I've ever seen. Like It's such an iconic place. That could be the pits of hell. Yeah. You could make a movie about the devil there, and it would be suitably frightening. So, amazingly made movie. But why they made it this way... Who will? Who knows? Yeah. George Lucas is insane. This is what he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, he would later just go on to sort of contain a lot of his insanity in, like, Jar Jar Beaks. Yes. So, where do you come down on Temple of Doom? Pretty much. I fucking place? love it, yeah. yeah. I, I love it, too. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but it's awesome. Yes. <laughs> it's, it doesn't feel like an Indiana Jones film. It doesn't feel like any other film ever made. It's very unique, and... 
I I don't know how it was funded commercially and released to theaters as is. Well, because Steven Spielberg was attached to it. Uh, oh, oh, that's, that's right. That's but like, can you imagine being the people at Paramount? You have this big hit with Raiders. You're like, uh, Steven, you want to do another one? He's like, sure. And they're like, oh, thank God. We get to do another indie film. We lo- It was so much fun. We enjoyed making it with him. We enjoyed releasing it. Made a lot of money. Audiences loved it. And then like, they're like, okay, so go make it. We don't care. Just make whatever you want. And then they come back and Steven's like, I've got this movie I want to show I've you. I've got the, you know, it's like he comes and it's like, okay, we're, we're, either we're shooting it, but we've got this little sequence. You have to see this is... This is phenomenal. And then he shows them the sequence where they pull the fucking heart out and it on fire. <laughs> Fuck. Well, how much did we pay for this? It's like, oh god, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> but, yeah, it made at the box office, though, I'm sure they weren't complaining, because it made $333 million at the box office. That would be massive today. In, like, 1984 dollars... That would be like over a billion. Yeah. That's huge. That many people went to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Can we safely say this is the single strangest, most avant-garde blockbuster ever made? Yeah. Oh, yeah. unquestionably. No, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been weirder ma- films made in the history of film, but yeah. not on this scale. Not this commercial either. Not for, yeah. like, that audience. Right. I mean, this movie basically contributed to the invention of PG-13, because it came out as a PG. <laughs> Which, how do you do that? How do you look at this if your two choices are PG and R, and you say, eh, it may as well be seen by kids? Yeah, it's still beating heart, like weird rapey overtones, whatever. You know, the protagonist that slaps a Chinese boy in the face. <laughs> it's fine. PG. PG. All right. So that's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Anything else before we move on? You betrayed Shiva? Damn. You betrayed Shiva. All right. I think it was five years after the uh, release of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, everybody came back for one more film, and this would be Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989. Let me check the date on that. Yes, 1989. And this film sees Harrison Ford back in the role, and John Reese davies returning as Sala, and Denholm Elliott returning as... Uh, so Marcus Brody, basically from the very beginning, this movie is doing as much as it can to connect itself to Raiders after Temple of Doom went off. <laughs> yeah, went, went off on its crazy-acid trip over in the corner. Yes. <laughs> like, okay, let's make another Indiana Jones movie now. I mean, Last Crusade opens with the same music that opens Raiders, and it's got the same font and typeface for the opening credits. Like, they are scrambling to make you yeah. realize this is just Raiders 2, or 3, or... It's... I don't know. Raiders again. Yeah. So, and that's not a bad thing. I'm yeah, saying. no. It's just, it's sort of interesting how, and it is kind of disappointing after watching Temple of Doom to come back and be like, oh, we're back to sanity now? <laughs> I wanted more insanity. But Last Crusade opens with the origin of young Indiana Jones, played yeah, by River, River Phoenix. Phoenix. Do you think River Phoenix is good in the role? Yeah, no. I, I sure do. I, I like this sequence, even though it is a little... It's a weird way to open the movie. It's a weird way to open the movie, and I think it's funny how they basically, their view of psychology is that Indiana Jones became who he is because of one Yeah, very because of this one specific moment. It's, it's this classic movie or TV show type thing where it's like the entirety of your human experience gets boiled down to like one significant key event that happened in your life, and you base every, like all of your personality and everything you do off of one thing that happened to you. Yep, and so it's just this one scene where he's in the Boy Scouts, he has to steal an, uh, an idol thing, a little the cross of Coronado. He 
gets that's where he gets his scar on his chin. That's where he gets the whip. He learns how to use the whip. That's where he gets the hat. That's yeah. where he gets his fear of snakes. Yeah, because you know everyone has a reason for their crazy phobias. Yeah, it's like everyone who's afraid of snakes fell into a giant pit of snakes when they were a kid. Yeah, no, there's no reason. <laughs> yeah, no, phobias are phobias because you don't have a reason for them. Right. I mean, I actually do have a fear of snakes. That's one of that's that is my only major phobia. Is I have a fear of snakes, like Indiana Jones. But I can't, I can't point you to the event in my life where I was thrown into a pit of snakes. It's just when you were a baby, you didn't get in a fist fight with a king cobra or anything like that. No. That never happened. I mean, I could have. I just don't know. You got tortured by a black mamba, and you just like repress the memories. Yes. So, so, but it's a really good scene. And River Phoenix, you can totally buy him as a young Harrison Ford. Yeah, he he does the role really well. Yep. So lots of good stuff here. I love how many times he says it belongs in a museum. It belongs in a museum. And then there's a great cut where he puts on the hat for the first time, and then we cut to Harrison Ford smiling in the rain. Yeah, and it plays, starts playing the heroic music, and then he gets punched <laughs> in the face. Because that's what happens. I mean, honestly, that's what happens to Indiana Jones in the majority of his fights. He just gets the shit kicked out of him, and he gets one lucky break that ends up killing the other guy. Yeah. So anyway, he's on this ship. He's an, an adult. He gets the cross of Coronado. It's a pretty cool opening that you know he, he's spent his whole life on this revenge quest. And he gets off the ship, and then a barrel falls onto a box of explosives, and the whole ship blows up. <laughs> yeah, with, like, the entire crew and everyone on it goes up in flames in this massive explosion. I don't know how Indy gets home safe. Like, he's just in the middle of this, like, torrential downpour. He's in the middle of a tsunami, basically. He, he called forth a submarine and wrote home. <laughs> of course. It's what he does. It's Indiana Jones. Water cannot kill him. No, he's, he can breathe underwater. It's yep. a little known fact. So that's the whole opening. We come back. Where we, it's, it's again, it's, it's sort of mimicking the structure of Raiders, where he comes back, he has a scene as a professor, and then he shows how little he cares about being a professor because during his office hours, there's so many kids clamoring to see him. Probably because he's never there. there right. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's never there. They probably all are worried because they're losing credits and their mm-hmm. parents can't afford to keep them here anymore in archaeology school. And then he's just like, Oh fuck! You know, I, I don't want to do this. So he puts on his hat and coat. And he just jumps out the yeah, window. Yeah, he just goes out the window and <laughs> leaves them there. Terrible, horrible teacher. Indiana Jones is just an awful, horrific teacher. <laughs> this is so weird. This alt narrative of Indiana Jones not being necessarily a hero, but just kind of a blithering asshole. Yeah, he just, he just destroys priceless artifacts. He somehow gets this job as a professor. But he's just a terrible. He's a terrible, horrible professor. Probably causes a lot of students to lose their interest in archaeology and don't go on in that career anymore. It's just terrible. He's a he's a, he's not a particularly good person. <laughs> All right. So then we last crusade. I don't think we need to go into too much detail on this film. It's it's a really good movie. It's the yep. hunt for the Holy Grail. It's all about him and his father, who's played by Sean Connery. And I guess that's probably where we should start a discussion of this one. Is less on going through plot points and more on just the characters. I mean, Harrison Ford, Indy, he's well... We know who he is at this point, and he yeah. is back to being Indy of Raiders. He's yeah. not weird alternate universe rape Indy. Yeah. So, like, something... I guess after the events of Temple of Doom, Indy was like, I gotta change the shit I've been doing, because my life is getting fucking weird. Yep. <laughs> so... It didn't really help him, though. Nope. So he's back to, you know... And then what's funny about Last Crusade is we now know he's been on two adventures... Where his life was significantly altered by mystical, godlike events. Yeah. And he still doesn't believe in any of it. Yeah, he's still like, it's Holy Grail, I don't believe in that. It's not going to give you a whole eternal life. Fuck that. That's stupid. Yeah. There's no way that could happen. So his father, played by Sean Connery, 
is, you know, an eternally questing for the Holy Grail and sort of the adventure that Indy inherits. But let's talk about this. Sean yes. Connery as Henry Jones Sr. On a scale of 1 to 10, how awesome is that? 11. Yep. 11, yeah. Definitely. It's, it's just pretty great. I mean, we talked about earlier that, you know, we were talking about the Bond 50 set earlier and how good Sean Connery is in those films. And it makes perfect sense that that man would be the father of Indiana Jones. Yeah. He has to be. Regardless of the weird ancestry there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Indiana Jones is not particularly Scottish. No, he's very, very American. Yeah. <laughs> Sean Connery is very, very not American. Right. <laughs> So it doesn't make any sense, but and and it's also kind of funny. You don't really consider it because Sean Connery, no offense to him, did not necessarily age spectacularly. Uh, they're only seven years apart in age. Yeah, you know, Harrison Ford. Kind of shocking. Yeah, yeah. shocking. As <laughs> yeah, whatever. All right, Let's move on. All right, we're not so, devolving this down to Sean Connery impressions. Okay, uh, but we agree he's very good in the part. Yeah, he and Harrison Ford have some great scenes together. Really good chemistry. And I think the film, it's the first film that really tries to do some character development. Yeah. Well, Temple of Doom arguably does, but you have to read into it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Temple of Doom, it's just Temple of Doom. No. But very on its surface, Last Crusade is about the father and son sort of rediscovering each other and sort of atoning for, you know, their own sins mm-hmm. in this relationship and sort of, you know, growing closer together. And I think on that level, it, it works really well. It's very heartfelt. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, like I said, this is my favorite of the Indiana Jones movies, and I think that's why, is that, while I like the other ones, there doesn't feel like there's much of a point to them, it's just like they're, I mean, they're really fun action-adventure movies, but they're action-adventure movies, and in this one, there is a sort of heart behind it of the, the Indiana and his father trying to reconcile their issues while going on a crazy, awesome adventure that's also spectacularly over the top. Yes. So... Um, so start, start talking again in sort of broad strokes here, I think Last Crusade is also notable, whether you like it or not, uh, you know, we can talk about that. It's got the by far the most overtly comedic tone in that, I mean, there are Looney Tunes jokes every five seconds. I mean, mm-hmm. every single time a character says something even slightly foreboding or prophetic, that thing will happen. Like, if you say, you know, uh, I don't know, what's a good example of that in the film? But it's like, X never marks the spot. Right. And then X marks the spot. spot. It's always stuff like that. It's Steven Spielberg at his most Spielberg comedic. <laughs> so, but there's a lot of good but stuff. But I think, and I think that's part of why it works in this movie is that, one, because a lot of the jokes come from Indiana Jones and Sean Connery, like them. Yeah. And their chemistry works to make the jokes work well. And then also the fact that the jokes are not red, like you don't have this random frying pan in the face moment in an otherwise serious action adventure movie the tone's a lot more consistent to me in Last Crusade where it's like there's a fun lighthearted humor built into it that the cue that the characters are somewhat conscious of yeah. whereas in Raiders of the Lost Ark it tends to be mostly very serious and then ridiculous shit happens and then because ridiculous comedic shit happens and it's like nobody really recognizes that was fucking stupid right but uh, in Last Crusade there and there are some legitimately just excellent jokes in here, too, not ones you can laugh at without irony, where Indiana Jones and his father are on the blimp, the big dirigible, to leave Germany, and the bad German general guy is coming on and looking for Henry Jones and his son, and (laughs) Indy is going around pretending to be a, you know, maitre d' or something, collecting tickets, and he's saying, ticket please, you know, and and he, basically, he just chucks, picks the guy up, punches him in the face, face, picks him up by, like, his, like, waistcoat, and then just chucks him off. Looks at everyone on the cabin and says, "No ticket." 
and everyone goes, oh, and pulls their ticket out. That's a good joke. Yeah, that's a good joke. It's like, that's what most of the jokes in the movie are. It's like, like even if they're not hilarious, they're these good, nice, funny beats that feel consistent with the movie's tone. Yeah. And what do you think of sort of the story and sort of the mystery element? Because this one is, again, a lot more like Raiders where they're following clues. It's literally a treasure hunt, even more yeah. than Raiders. Do you find that fun? Yeah, I mean, I think it serves just the same purposes as Raiders. It's right. a nice, interesting way to just move the plot along and get characters to the next action set piece. No, I absolutely agree, and I think it culminates really well in the finale, which I want to talk about here, where they have to face the three challenges. It feels like a really good culmination because yeah. we've had that treasure hunting aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I made a big list of my favorite Indiana Jones moments for We Got This Covered, and the finale of The Last Crusade was at, like, number three or four, because it's such a fun sequence where, you know, Henry Jones gets shot. That's not fun. But yeah, then, then what Indy has to do and, you know, go through the challenges. And it's very, it really feels fulfilling, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and John Williams has that great Grail theme that he wrote. And mm-hmm. it keeps coming back. And it just, it, it, it's really tight. It's really well done. Yeah. Even though it's sort of weird. The one challenge where it's, you know, be penitent before God. Where you have to kneel. But then yeah. you have to kneel and roll. Yeah, no, it's like, because it's, you, you go through and it's like, you're supposed to be penitent before God to pass the challenge. So it's like, it means you're supposed to kneel because there are these huge fucking saw blades that they made in the, during the First Crusade, I guess, that come out of the wall like a head level to cut you off. But then there's another one that comes up out of the ground that it would kind of like cut up into your legs. It's like, the hint never says anything about that one. Yeah. It's like, Indy was just really fucking lucky that it's like, penitent man must pass. A penitent, a penitent man bows before God. Then he bows, ducks, the saw goes over his head. Then, oh shit, there's one to below me too. Fucking roll, get the fuck out of there. Yep. It's pretty awesome, though. And then there's sort of the... I can never decide whether this sequence is too outlandish or just outlandish enough with the big invisible bridge. I love that. I, I love think, that, too. I think, I think that's good. great. Yeah. Because, I mean, while it's implausible, it's not impossible. No. It's not like the opening to Raiders where it's like, none of that stuff could happen. That's that's completely ridiculous. You could paint a bridge to look like the cliff face and you would probably not be able to see the bridge. Like, that's possible. Yeah. And it's, again, with the music building and yeah. Harrison Ford's performance, which is so good, mm-hmm. works really well. Yeah. So, good ending, and we have to talk about the knight, of course. He chose poorly. poorly. Yeah, I love... It's, it's You've got this knight from, like, the first Crusades. It's been, like, 700 to 800 years prior to where the movie's set. Who's just sitting in the room with the Holy Grail and has been sitting there for 700 to 800 years. That dude has to stink like a motherfucker. Right? <laughs> Yes, he's he does. like he hasn't had a bath or anything for seven to eight hundred years, just is, living off the Holy Grail's power. We see him reading a book. Do you think that's the only book he's had to pass the time? Yeah, he's fucking lucky that that book hasn't just completely decayed either. He's taking good care of that book. Yep, probably goes to sleep with it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so then of course you know you have the selection of the cups. That's another fun challenge mm-hmm. where Elsa. I, is it implied? Do you think that Elsa intentionally gives him the wrong yeah, cup? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But then she's really horrified by what she does. Well, yeah, I, while she gave him the wrong cup, I don't think she expected that it would rapidly age him and turn him to a skeleton right before her eyes. Yes. <laughs> Great scene. He chose yeah, that's poorly. Poorly. Awesome. This is like also just phenomenal special effects on oh, yeah. Donovan turning into a skeleton dying. Go ILM. I mean, today that would all just be done with CGI and it, would, it wouldn't look cool. Yeah. Me. Looks, looks really real yep. the way they do it. So then Indy finds obviously the cup of the carpenter, which is just kind of a shitty little cup, and makes the whole thing kind of anticlimactic. 
Yeah. You got a little cup, gives you some immortality, but you can't take it beyond the walls. Which is, but we were talking about this, that's not really, like, the, the dude's like, you can't take it beyond the walls, that's the price of immortality. I'm just saying that it's like, you know, dude, you didn't have to stay in the room with the Holy Grail the entire time. You could just come back every few years or so, got a little dose of immortality, then come back again. Like, you don't need to stay with the Holy Grail the entire fucking time. It's slightly inconvenient, but it's immortality. Yeah, it's like you can manage. Yeah. It's like you just gotta get a plane to the ancient city of Petra. Should we talk about that ancient city yeah. of Petra? Yeah, I, I, I just love this, because I knew I knew about this because it's probably saw it on like, the History Channel or something prior to having seen Last Crusade for the first time. And so you have, it's, I mean, it's an awesome, awesome looking place. But the, the where they go, where they, like, the map leads them to ultimately where the Holy Grail is, the, where they go, at least the outside of it, is the, the ancient city of Petra, which is this really, I, forget, I think it's like in Iran or something like that, this very old city that's like carved into this cliff face and it's fucking huge. But it really exists. It's one of the ancient wonders of the world. So it's really strange knowing that that's a real place and that is one of the ancient wonders of the world and having a team of archaeologists like stumble across it being like, oh, this must be where the Holy Grail is. It's amazing. Nobody knew this massive temple embedded into a cliffside existed. Oh, wait, yeah, no. It's, it's the ancient city of Petra. There are probably a bunch of tourists just like right off camera. And then they destroyed the ancient city of Petra. Yeah, because the one, like the Elsa chick, takes the Holy Grail, steps across the seal, and then the city of Petra sinks into into the ground. It's like, fucking great. You, like, okay, whatever. Like, ancient Incan temple or whatever it was in Raiders, you destroyed. Okay. The ancient Egyptian artifacts you destroyed in Raiders. Whatever. Temple of Doom, all that shit. Okay. This is one of the ancient wonders of the world, asshole. To keep, like, to, like, can you think, can you imagine the outcry if that actually happened to the real ancient city of Petra? Like, that would be insane. It's just like, it's gone, it's sank into the ground, it's sorry, someone took the grail beyond the, the seals. Like, for fuck's, you know, this, this place is really fucking important, man. You can't just destroy it. <laughs> Alright, so the next character I want to talk about is Elsa, because we've mentioned yeah. her a couple times. She's, you know, the third Jones girl, I guess you would call her. <laughs> the, the third unfortunate woman to sleep with Indiana Jones. Yes, because this just furthers the themes. I mean, I want to start by saying that I actually like Dr. Elsa. I, yeah. think she's, she's, I like Alison Duty's a good actress yeah, in the Duty. role. Yeah, she's got a funny name. But she's kind of charming in the role. She and Harrison Ford have a hint of chemistry, but then they're written so weird, where they're first flirt... First off, Dr. Jones just sees her and is like, I'm fucking that. And yeah, no, it's like he just starts flirting with her immediately, like, gives her a flower. It's like, the, literally the first time they've met, like, they just like, hey, hey, here's a flower. Yeah. He's like, like little... he didn't even know... He assumed she was a man before meeting her. See, she's a hot Austrian chick, and just like... Yeah, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep with her. Yeah. And then when they're in their hotel and they're flirting, it's like, for some reason, now they hate each other. Yeah. And they're going back and forth, like, trading insults, and then they just start kissing. And yeah. it's like, it's just this weird, like, BDSM vibe to it, you know? And then, uh, later on in the movie, when it turns out she's a Nazi, because who would have guessed Dr. Elsa Schneider, Schneider is a Nazi? With the heavy German accent. Is a Nazi. Yeah. But anyway, it turns out, she, turns out she slept with the older Jones and the younger Jones, which I can buy that, that Sean Connery, his son, oh, also... Oh, it's Sean Connery, yeah. yeah. 
Sean Connery would, of course, have done that, and he would have passed that on to his son. Yeah. That's, that's what he does. So anyway, um, then this is a moment that I kind of wish I didn't have Blu-ray for, because she kisses him while she's, like, going to leave them to die in the room, where they've, they've tied them yeah. up, you know? She kisses him, and she kisses him in the weirdest fucking way, where she's sucking on his bottom lip, and as she's pulling away, she kind of pulls his lip with her, and then she lets go, and, a, like, a trail of saliva is there, and you can only see that on Blu-ray, but it's like, God, you should have de that a little yeah. bit for that moment. <laughs> it's just another awkward romantic scene, yeah. where I'm not sure Harrison Ford knows how to kiss on screen. <laughs> I mean, it w- works great in Star Wars, Yeah, not in the Indiana Jones movies. Like, no. it feels like they're trying to do the Princess Leia thing every single time, they don't hit it any of the times. No. So, kind of awkward. But, anyway, that's Elsa. She's kind of a fun character. You've got Donovan as the villain, who's really just the Belloc character here. Yeah. He's just an asshole who gets what's coming to mm-hmm. him. Um, Sala returns to steal some camels. Yeah, Sala, Sala's there because they go to Cairo. Sala doesn't do anything in the movie. No. We have Marcus Brody back, who apparently got a lobotomy in between movies one and three. Yeah, where he was a kind of a minor character in Raiders 1, but he wasn't, like, bumbling and incompetent. And then this, he starts off just sort of, like, normal. And then as it proceeds, he's, like, the most bumbling and incompetent person on the fucking planet. And it feels like they made that decision just on a dime. Like, where Indy does the thing where he describes um, Brody, and yeah. he's describing him as, like, this. he speaks 12 languages, he's got a two-day head start, you'll never find him. Yeah, you'll blend in, you'll never find him, and with any luck, he's got the grail already. And because we know that the joke will be it's the opposite, he's, he just stumbles in and he's bumbling in the streets of Cairo. Yeah. And it feels like they made that decision for Brody just right on the page, like, when they were Yeah, it was it. like they wrote that with Indiana Jones, it's like, wait a minute, we can make a joke here. It's like, but, but we are going to make Brody a serious, helpful character. No, we can make a joke here. Yeah. He's a bubbling buffoon now. Yeah. Because the thing is, the way Andy described him, we know relatively little about Brody, but we know he's a smart, academic guy. He could be that. Yeah. The way Andy describes him. There's no reason he couldn't be that guy, except that there has to be a lot of ironical humor. Yeah. So, idiot. Yeah, Brody proceeds to be an idiot for the rest of the movie and completely useless and pointless. Yes. And yeah. the, the whole tank chase, which is a spectacular scene, is just to rescue his dumbass because he walks into a truck. Yeah. Do we want to talk about how he's captured by the Nazis? Yeah, it's the weirdest fucking scene where Brody is in Cairo, he meets up with Sala, and then these two guys come up and they're like trying to be, pretend to be from like some museum or something to convince Brody to go with them. And Sala's like, those aren't those guys, run, get the fuck out of here. And eventually Sala punches them out, Brody runs away, he runs up this ramp that he's... I assume it looks like it doesn't lead into a truck. Like, it looks like it leads, like, further into, like, a building or something. He runs up this ramp. Then you see these two random people on the side going, lift the ramp up. And you see, oh, it's the back of a truck. And the truck drives away. Leading you to assume that was their plan the entire fucking time was for for Marcus to just run into the back of a truck that they made to look like the front of a building. (laughs) What kind of fucking plan is that? It's a Looney Tunes plan. Yeah, it's completely... That's the most baffling part of this whole movie to me, is just that moment, because there's no logic to it whatsoever. No. You can't possibly follow how that just happened. But it fucking happened. Yay. At least nobody smacks Brody in the face with a frying pan when he gets on. (laughs) We can can think that. Alright, so anything else... else, Where else do you want to talk about Last Crusade? Um... I think we covered, like, some of the bigger stuff. Like, to me, the biggest stuff is 
Indy and his father. Let's right. Just, it's well done. Yeah, There's, well done. It's sort of funny because we were talking about this while we watched the movie. The Indiana Jones trilogy basically has every vehicular chase you can imagine. Yeah. And Last Crusade works overtime to fulfill yeah, that. Yeah, they cram a lot into this one. Yeah, you've got a boat chase, you've got a motorcycle chase, you've got a plane chase, and you've got a fucking tank chase. And it just doesn't count as a chase, but they go on a fucking blip. So yes. It's like, at least like every vehicle makes an appearance. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because in the whole trilogy, they even thought to do minecarts and yeah. shit like that. It's pretty funny. You've got foot chases in all of these, too. It's it's crazy. A lot of good chases, though. I mean, my favorite one in this movie is pro- is a, the tank chase, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the tank chase is awesome. It's great. I mean, just at that slow pace, it's very strategic. Mm-hmm. A lot of fighting. It's really good. Um, but, I mean, the boat one earlier on is cool, too, even though it's it's kind of narratively a dead end, because those guys aren't important. Yeah, the... the- Knights Templar or whatever they are. Well, they're not the Knights Templar, but yeah, the Guardians of the Grail. Yeah. Those dudes. Yeah, I have no idea why those guys... It felt like those guys are supposed to be a lot more important, and then the main one who's in that scene just gets killed in the tank scene, and, like, nothing comes of it. Yeah. So, don't know what they were there for. Another chase scene. Yeah. So while we're talking about James Bond being an awful... James Bond. Indiana Jones being an awful archaeologist... Should we mention the scene where he goes into this ancient, beautiful Venetian library? <laughs> and he figures out, X marks the spot, we have to go in through the floor to get to the, the knight's tomb. And instead of just like going and finding someone and being like, hey, we're archaeologists, can we lift up one of these tiles? Yeah, it's like, do it, you have a pry bar? Yeah. We can just slip in between there and open it up? We'll put it all back in order later. He takes a giant you know, golden rod and just starts bashing it and bashing it. And he, he opens it up, rips the tile off, goes in. He and Elsa go down there. That's where all the rats are. They find the knight's tomb. He makes an imprinting of the shield. Mm-hmm. And then when fire's coming, he just rips the, the, the tomb away and just lowers it into the petroleum and yeah. destroys it. Destroys the thing his father spent his entire life looking for. Yeah, the tomb of the ancient crusader, along with his shield that had the inscription on it that helped yeah. him find the grail. Yeah, he just... Archaeology! Yep. Woo! Yep. So... So I think that's about it for Last Crusade. Good movie. Awesome movie. Yep. Really fun. So, with all this in mind, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast, on Indiana Jones, talking about all the things that are weird in these movies. And make no mistake, we love these movies. Yeah. It's just a lot of fun to talk about the weird things in them. Because they are... Because when you get down to it, a lot of the shit that happens in the movie, total bullshit. Yeah. Like riding on a submarine. So, I ask you, Sean, now that we transition into the fourth and final film... Why is nuking the fridge the line for so many stupid people? Because this movie comes to, like, because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull got made so far after the other ones that people can't accept it anymore. That's right. why. It's, like, because they just have so much nostalgia about the original Indiana Jones movies. They just look past the issues. Yeah. That's that's why. Yeah. It's not that people make it out to be this huge betrayal of the franchise. It's not that. No, they, those people just are not watching the Indiana Jones movies close enough. They're completely ridiculous, devoid of any logic. That's how those movies are. Yeah, I mean, my the biggest sin the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull commits to me is that it's kind of boring. Yeah, it's it's got some good action here and there, but I don't find the story that compelling. I think it retreads a lot of old ground where it's just a kind of another treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really go in any new directions. I I don't dislike Sheila Booth in this movie, but I think he's an under he, just he's not a fully realized character. Like yeah. again, I mean, their original idea was just kind of to bring Short Round back. I think that would have been much more interesting to revisit that relationship. Yeah. 
Um, it doesn't. It, it has a lot of characters in it that we're expected to care about that I really don't like, like the Ray Winstone character. I think Ray Winstone is probably a really good actor, but I hate him whenever I see him because the Mac character in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is so fucking annoying. Yeah. And not annoying in a fun way, like Willie. Just kind of obnoxious because he's a I wouldn't call quadruple. Willie annoying in a fun way either. Okay. Willie is awful annoying. Okay. Anyway. Terrible annoying. Um, but, yeah, lots of stuff in Crystal Skull. Like the villain, Kate Blanchett. I think she does what she can with it, and she's got kind of a funny voice, but she's not as fun as the other villains. She's not Molaram. No. We can agree Molaram is the best villain in the oh, series. Oh, yeah. 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 Molaram's awesome. At least of, like, the main dudes. I would say yeah. nobody beats Tote from no. Raiders, but of the main villains, Molaram's the best by far. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had definitely has its moments, and I think the biggest thing to note is that Harrison Ford is great. Yeah. He hasn't missed it. Like, Sean and I, after we watched Last Crusade today, when we were preparing for the podcast, we just slipped in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull disc and spot-checked some scenes, and he, it's like he didn't miss a beat. He's the same guy. It's yeah. awesome. He's Harrison Ford's still awesome. I mean, we, one thing I have to say about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that I... Where it, I think it's got a lot of really good ideas that it doesn't quite execute on. Like, I, always, I like, in theory, the fact that it takes place in the 50s now. It's got communists instead of Nazis. And the whole theme of it is very much a 50s sci-fi B-movie yeah. with, like, the alien skulls and stuff like that. They go to Area 51. It's just, like, they don't quite execute on that idea well enough. It's too hesitant. Yeah, but the idea is good. And yeah. then also including, like, the nuclear test, like... The, I like how they move it ahead in time and play with like and play with that idea. Right. So there's a lot of good ideas there. I just think it, it just kind of feels tired. Like Steven Spielberg, he directs it well, but I don't feel like his heart is really in it. Yeah. And I don't really see that in the script or mo- many of the performances. It's just it's kind of dead to me. Where the other three, even when they're flawed, are so alive and vibrant and just vigorous. Yeah. So. And the other thing I want to say about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and this is probably, it's, it's going to sound like a petty complaint, but I think it's actually a pretty substantive one, and watching them on Blu-ray again reinforces this for me, is that the first three movies are unbelievably gorgeous. I yeah. forget the name of the cinematographer who did them, but it's a, the cinematographer who worked with Steven Spielberg for much of his career, Douglas Slocum is his name, and Douglas Slocum shot those movies so well. They look so good on 35mm and on Blu-ray. They've just got this beautiful grain structure. They look very uh, earthy, and they're just really well done. They're visually beautiful. But Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was shot by Spielberg's new cinematographer, who he's worked with since, I think, Schindler's List, Janusz Kaminski, I've never liked Kaminsky as much. I think he's a good cinematographer, but he's not. I don't think he's always quite up to what Spielberg needs, and I kind of wish he would work with someone else someday. And Crystal Skull, the colors are just kind of muted. It looks very, very digital, even though it was shot on film. Yeah. There's just... It's slathered in CGI. I mean, every shot is just so digitized. It doesn't look like an Indiana Jones film to me. Yeah. And that's... If there's any betrayal going on here... That, to me, would be it, is that it doesn't look like an Indiana Jones movie. And if it doesn't look like one, it doesn't really feel like one to me. Like, John Williams is still there, and he does a great job, as he always does. But the look is sort of detached from that. And when we looked at these on Blu-ray, Crystal Skull looks like garbage compared to the first three. Yeah, no, Crystal Skull does not look anywhere near as good as the other three. No, and it's it's just so soft because, again, it's so digitized. And because I think Janusz Kaminski does not have the same kind of eye for those sort of gorgeous, bright, colorful visuals. So, there you have it, but... 
Yeah. It's a complaint worth making. Yeah. It's the big shock. Crystal Skull's the worst of the three. Yeah. Or the four. So, that's that. That's Indiana Jones. Anything else to say about this? You betrayed Shiva. All right. We all betrayed Shiva. I didn't. Okay. So, next week, I think we have a pretty fun show for you guys. And I'm pretty excited to do it. Sean, what is your favorite podcast we've ever recorded? For WGTC Radio, at least. Well, that would have to be the Prometheus one. Yes. For podcast number four in July, we recorded the Prometheus podcast, which was our spoilerish discussion of Prometheus, where we went into every little minute aspect of the film and made fun of it. And yes. it's yes, like every, every, my, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's almost as long as the movie itself. It is. So it's a good podcast. We had so much fun with that, and it's become a recurring joke on the podcast. I think we even referenced it here earlier. Yeah, you made a joke. Yeah. So I always make a Prometheus joke when it occurs yeah. to me. So the day after this podcast comes out, October 9th, Prometheus arrives on DVD and Blu-ray, makes its glorious arrival with 40 minutes of deleted scenes, which we're excited to watch. Yeah. And we are going to record the Prometheus podcast, The Squeakquel. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yep. It's, and we are going to talk about Prometheus again. We're going to talk about the bonus features. And there will be a feature on the site this week, probably going to come out Thursday or Friday, so this will be before the next podcast called 100 Logical Issues with Prometheus, and we are going to create a list. It'll be easy to read. It'll be like one sentence per issue. Yeah. And we're going to list every fucking issue we can find, and we could probably list more. Yeah, we, we, were, we were brainstorming this, and we were trying to f- pin down what number to try to aim for. Yep. 100 might be actually lowballing it. It very well could be. So we are going to we are going to do lots of research for you guys on this. We are going to work hard on Prometheus Podcast, the sequel. We're going to try to deliver the sequel that's even better than the original. Yep, we're going to work harder to point out logical inconsistencies in Prometheus than the makers did at trying to make a logical consistency in Prometheus. Yes. So we are excited for that. So, come back next week for that, I guess. Yes, for the return of the scathing, just ranting about how awful a lot of the stuff in Prometheus was. How inexplicably well-received that movie is, still is received by some people. Very weird. And and it's 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 such a fun topic. I'm I'm gonna spend we're gonna spend actual like considerable money on buying this fucking release. Yeah. Even though it's a movie we don't like. <laughs> yeah. We have to do it. It's the first time I've done that in a long time. Just go buy a movie I don't like. Yeah. That's I'm glad that you're the one that's buying it. Because yeah, I feel with all the well, I was definitely the heavier side of the rant of that part. I feel like kind of like a Big hypocrite if I went out and bought the Blu-ray with my own money after saying, like, recording two hours of me yelling at the movie, basically. Yep. All right. So, that's the end of this episode. Yes, it is.